vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
All right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is May 12, 2015. It's Tuesday. It's about, well, it's almost 10 minutes after 8 p.m. If that's all true where you're at, we are, in fact, live. Oh, wait a minute. Okay. Okay, there we go. Today is Tuesday, May 12, 2015. It's about 10 minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific Time. And if that's all true, we are in fact live. This is the Frank Report. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. If we are live, you can call in 800-932-1980. Or you can go to the chat room at theamericanvoice.com. Or AmericanVoiceRadio.com. You can participate there, or you can just chat with the other folks. Uh, Yahoo Instant Messenger, the screen name is AVRN Talk. All one word. All right. You know, I hope you all listened to the last show there. And I hope you will go to the website of the guest, Rob West, rmeadvisors.com. You need to check it out, folks, uh, because what he's talking about, well, it affects everyone, really. It's the, uh, you know, the LIBOR interest rate rigging, okay? It's a, uh, it's a foregone conclusion that it was a crime, it's fraud, the interest rates affect everything, including credit cards, mortgages, car loans, all of it. They're guilty of fraud. Fraud vitiates the most solemn contract, meaning it was no good from the beginning. You know, so you can sit there and you can, uh, you know, let your family go without food and this and that and whatever. And, you know, because, oh boy, I got to pay that credit card Oh, I got to pay the... You know what? Uh, I heard something else very interesting. You know, the show will be in the archives tonight after this show. And uh, I heard something very interesting about the credit, you know, the FICA scores or FICO scores. Yeah, uh, hey, did you ever, you know, sign up for that? Do you ever give them permission to say, yeah, hey, collect everything there is to collect on me and then sell it to third parties for a profit? And then have that either damage me or help me? Yeah. Did you sign up for that? Well, I didn't. I don't know anybody that did. And the case was made tonight. That's identity theft. Yeah. You're using my information... You're profiting from it, you know. And banks are making decisions based on you. Based on what you say. Hmm. Anyway, so I hope you'll give it a listen. American Independence Hour. It'll be, like I said, it'll be updated in the archives uh, after this show. It's important stuff, folks. I mean, this is... This, you know, this is, uh, look, you know, the stuff about the, the second set of books, 
okay? It's interesting stuff, very true. Great evidence of what a bunch of crooked con artists they really are. But it doesn't really affect most people. This does. You know, most people have some kind of loan in the last 20 years. You know, anyway, let's get on with other stuff. Anyway, um, the uh, this fast track TPP thing earlier, you know, it. it the Democrats basically decided to uh, say, forget it. We're not going for this. And uh, now, President Obama and the Senate Democratic leaders are working to resurrect his trade agenda. Yeah. Obama met with 10 Senate Democrats after a humiliating defeat on the Senate floor for one of Obama's top remaining priorities for his presidency. Albeit a defeat that the White House is gamely calling a procedural snafu. <laughs> the president convened a meeting today with Senate Democrats, including members who have publicly indicated their support for advancing a TPA bill to discuss a path forward for this legislation. An administration official told CQ Roll Call, the president reiterated his view, which he shared in numerous similar conversations with members over the past several weeks, that passing TPA is an important step forward finalizing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the most progressive trade agreement in our history. Okay, folks, you know what? That right there ought to say, okay, the no. Like I said, was I kidding when I told you this is NAFTA on crack? The most progressive trade agreement in our history, which levels the playing field for American workers and puts in a new high standards environmental label and human rights protections. Oh, really? And And... Where can we find that? Oh, that's right. We can't find that anywhere because we're not allowed to read it. We just have to take your word for it that, oh, you're going to put in place high standard environmental labor and human rights protections. Oh, yes, and level the playing field. You know what that means, folks? Level the playing field does not mean raise the playing field for everybody else to American standards. It means to lower the American standards to level the playing field with the rest of the third world cesspool out there. Separately, Senate Democrats led by Minority Leader Harry Reid and Charles Schumer, both of which who should be in prison, folks, have floated a proposal to Republicans through Schumer that could provide an option for a way forward to pass the so-called fast-track authority, a precursor for an up-or-down vote on major trade deals with Asia and Europe. You know, what is the big problem here? 
Why can't the Senate just do its job? Hmm? A Senate aide said the idea would be for a standalone vote on Schumer's currency proposal, followed by full consideration of everything except the currency piece. Wow. So, really, all they care, they they only give a damn about their currency, their banks. Oh, we got to do something to protect the banks from China. That's what we have to do, because the Chinese are going to open up a bank and put all these criminals out of business. I say good for them. An aide to Senator Ron White, a Democrat from Oregon, earlier told Roll Call that there are enough Democrats prepared to vote to pass a fast-track bill if Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell agrees to a plan that would lead to all four trade-related bills passed by the Finance Committee to pass by the Senate. Per a White House readout, the Democrats who attended the meeting included uh, Michael Bennett of Colorado, Maria Cantwell of Washington, Ben Cardin of Maryland, Tom Caper of Delaware, Heidi Hetklap of North Dakota, Tim Kaine of Virginia, Patty Murray of Washington, Bill Nelson of Florida, Mike Warner of Virginia, and Wyden. Carper was the only one to actually vote to support the president today. The White House readout said the senators reiterated their support for the underlying fast-track bill. McConnell warned earlier Tuesday that attaching currency enforcement would effectively kill the underlying bill because the president would veto it. He was offered separate votes on the Senate floor of the various trade proposals, although that's not the same as assuring their passage. Something he can't do on his own. Well, you know, this is just crap, folks. I mean, honestly. These guys, this is all about fast-tracking. This isn't even about the actual trade devastation that the uh, you know Pacific Partnership will do to Americans. This is about saying, no, you know what, we don't want to do our job. We don't want to take the authority. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want the American people to have a chance to read this thing and watch our debates and hear about what it really is. No, we just want this all kept secret. And then uh, five seconds before we're supposed to vote, here it is. uh, Vote on it, yes or no. And we can all just find out how screwed we are after they pass it. Right? Right? Well, speaking of which, (laughs) you know, here we have another state. Now, they only spent $205 million. You know, Oregon spent $330 million. Lost it all. But, uh, yeah, $205 million in federal taxpayer funding. Hawaii's Obamacare exchange website will soon be shut down. Since its implementation, the exchange has somehow failed to become financially viable because of lower-than-expected Obamacare enrollment figures. And and this has got to be pretty significant, Obamacare enrollment fi- in figures, because uh, they say they needed a $28 million bailout. $28 million to run a website that basically directs you 
to insurance companies. How hard is this, man? I mean, really, we're sitting here, and you know the the, the fact is, mo- folks, most of you don't build websites, okay? I understand that. Most of you do not build websites. But I'm telling you, there is no way in the world that a website like Obamacare should be costing $28 million. And, and you know, kudos to the Hawaiian uh, legislature that said, no, we're not giving you $28 million. Just go ahead and shut it down. You've already pissed away $205 million. We're not giving you any more money. Oh, and it's all because uh, not enough people signed up. Really? $28 million worth? Has anybody signed up for it in Hawaii? You know, the fact is, Obamacare is a failure on epic levels. Okay? And now, all these people who did sign up in Hawaii that are getting subsidies should no longer be getting the subsidies. Now, the Supreme Court, I have no faith in them. They are as corrupt and political, bought-off, shill, rubber-stamped kangaroos that have ever existed. And they get very little right. Very little. And I don't have much... You know what? I don't have much respect for even their legal minds. I think they are uh, senile, old criminals, is what I believe they are. Figureheads. Because the law is clear. This shouldn't even be, you know, they should slam down the gavel and say, get out of here. You're not allowed subsidies if you're on a federal exchange. The law is written the way it is. It was written that way on purpose. It was an idea. You see, it was a political maneuver that didn't work. So now they want to pretend it didn't happen. Oh, no, that's not what happened. That's not what we meant. Oh, but that's what you said you meant. In everything you wrote, that's what you did. They tried to get the states to make their own exchanges by saying, listen, if you make your own exchange, the people of your state will get subsidies. If you don't, they don't get subsidies. So you know what? You better build your own or else the people in your state are going to rebel against you. Well, that didn't happen because most of the states didn't do it. And the few that tried are failing at it. Now they want to act like, oh, no, 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 the subsidies apply to everybody. No, they don't. And if you take that away, you kill Obamacare. And you've actually got Republicans up there that vowed to kill Obamacare, trying to save Obamacare. According to the Honolulu Star Advertiser, the Hawaii, uh, Hawaii Health Connector, <laughs> Health Connector, you know, folks, listen, this is like going to Orbitz or uh, Hotels.com or any of these other places that you go and say, wow, let's see, I want an airplane ticket, I want to rent a car, and I want to, uh, you know, uh, stay in a hotel. And I want to do it on this date and that date, and uh, boom. You click the button, and up comes, what, like a 100 different choices? In 50 different combinations? In about 10 seconds? I wonder if those sites cost $28 million, or should I say $205 million, or $330 million. I wonder if they did. Because if they didn't, 
Why didn't the why didn't the state of Hawaii just go hire them and say, look, we want a website just like this? Except we don't need it to get you a car and a hotel and an airline ticket. We just need it to buy insurance. And we've only got three plans. Yeah, how hard is that, huh? You got three plans, and then you uh, up comes all the insurers. Pick one. No, they can't do that. They're going to stop taking new enrollees on Friday, and plans to begin migrating to the federally run healthcare.gov Outreach services will end by May 31st. All technology will be transferred to the state by September 30th, and its workforce will be eliminated by February 28th. While the exchange has struggled since its creation, it is not for lack of funding. Since 2011, Hawaii has received a total of two. Hundred and five million three hundred forty two thousand two hundred seventy dollars in federal grant money. That's grant money, as in they don't ever have to pay it back from the Department of Health and Human Services. In total, HHS provided nearly four point five billion dollars to Hawaii and other state exchanges with little federal oversight and virtually no strings attached. Wow, I can see where that money went in Hawaii because, you know, listen, Hawaii, I lived there for a little over a year. And uh, as far as politics and government goes, it's one of the more corrupt places because really all it is is a third world uh, island. It really is. I mean, they've got Pearl Harbor there and they've got Honolulu. And that's all geared for, you know, Honolulu, Oahu, all that's all geared for tourism. Uh, Obviously, the Navy base there is what it is, Navy base. But the rest of the uh, Hawaii, it's third world. You know? Yeah, we can call it a state if you want. It doesn't matter. California is a state and it's third world. And they run their politics just like third world. Okay? It's corrupt. Real corrupt. It might not be as corrupt as, say, I don't know, Illinois or Michigan or New York or D.C. or Baltimore or Austin, Texas or, you know, Salem, Oregon or, well, then there's Arkansas and then there's, gee, you know, you know, I was just thinking yesterday when I was talking to Dean uh, on the show there that, gosh, you know, hey, the Illinois governor's in prison, the Virginia governor's in prison. One of the governors from Arkansas went to prison, and Huckabee should have went with him, but he uh, burned up all the, uh, you know, hard drives. Uh, who else? You know, I mean, gosh. And uh, Dean says that, you know, Cuomo might be going to prison himself. Two of his top lieutenants are uh, already indicted, been arrested. <laughs> Seems like a pattern to me. Anyway, despite this generous funding, the exchange has underperformed from day one. In its first year, Hawaii enrolled only 8,592 people. Well, individuals, anyway. Meaning it spent almost $23,899 on its website for each individual enrolled. 
you know, if you gave every one of those people $23,899, I bet they could go find some decent insurance for that. Currently, over 37,000 individuals are enrolled in Hawaii's exchange, well below the estimated 70,000 enrollees that is required to make the website financially viable. 70,000 enrollees that is required to make the website financially viable. Unfortunately, taxpayers will have to hand out an additional $30 million so that Hawaii can migrate to the federal system. This is not the first time that a state exchange has failed and taken millions of dollars in federal funds down with it. Earlier this year, Oregon State Exchange was officially abolished at an estimated cost of $41 million. Oh, yeah, right? No, $330 million. Sorry. Cover Oregon, as it used to be known, received, ah, here we go, $305 million in in funds from HHS, but failed to produce a workable website months after the 2013 November deadline. The debacle has prompted numerous federal agencies and organizations to investigate allegations of uh, inappropriate political interference from then-Governor Kitzhaber's 2014 re-election campaign. Yeah, his little concubine probably stole all the money. Hawaii now joins Oregon, Massachusetts, Maryland, Vermont, New Mexico, and Nevada as cautionary tales in government central planning. With so many failed state exchanges, questions need to be asked about the haphazard allocation of billions of dollars in taxpayer funds and the complete lack of oversight or competence. Let's not forget competence. We have a lot of missing competence. I mean, honestly, folks, this, look, you might think, oh, this is, you know, this is a big undertaking like they say. No, really. Go check out a site like Orbitz. This is all you're doing. The state exchange is not actually selling you any insurance. It's simply giving you the choices so then you can pick one, go there, and buy the insurance from them. And they can't even do that? Why? Because Valerie Jarrett's kids are running the show from Canada? (laughs) Man, obviously, we have run into a situation which happens in most dictatorships, okay? It's not new. Happens all the time. Happened to the Nazi regime. Some of their biggest problems were the fact that, you know, because it was so political, you know, nobody was put in their jobs because they were good at it and they were competent at it. They were put in their jobs because they were yes men. They were politically correct, okay? So they got the job, but they weren't qualified. They couldn't do the job. So all they did was smile and nod their head. That's what happens, and that's what's happening here. This is what's happening in the United States. And yes, you can blame it on political correctness, because you know what? People go, well, you know, political correctness just makes people polite. No, it doesn't make people polite. It makes them zombies, okay? Let's take a break, and we'll be back in just a bit.
internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free to air satellite system from ABR. The ABR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75 centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541 541- 225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. An important message from Donald Trump and Americans for Limited Government. While I'm a Republican, right now some in the Republican Party are working overtime to hand more power to President Obama. These same people are turning their backs on the American workers and businesses. It's unbelievable. I learned a long time ago, a bad deal is far worse than no deal at all. And the Obama Trans-Pacific Partnership and Fast Track are a bad, bad deal for American businesses, for workers, for taxpayers, 
It's a huge set of handouts for a few insiders that don't even care about our great, great America. Congress has to stand up and defeat this raw power grab. With the dismal Obama track record, why should a Republican Congress give him more power and gut the Constitution to do it? It's just crazy. Tell your congressman and senator, vote no on Fast Track. Take action at Obamatrade.com. Obamatrade.com. Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
All right, we're back. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still the 12th of May 2015. It's Tuesday. It's about 8.42 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast. You can still call in 800-932-1980 if you'd like. You can go to the chat room at theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. And Yahoo Instant Messenger, the uh, screen name is A-V-R-N Talk. Anyway, there you have it. All right, well, let's see. Stump the room. Uh, the room got the first one, which was a uh, another cover of Statesboro Blues by Taj Mahal. And, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of people... Think that uh, you know that uh, what do you call it? The Almond Brothers were actually the originators of that song, and they just covered it too. They probably got the best cover though um, out of anybody. Although Taj Mahal, I think, does a good uh, a good rendition of it. I like almost everything Taj Mahal uh, does. Or at least that I've heard, anyway. But uh, the actual original was by Blind Willie McTell. <laughs> you know, you got to love these guys, Blind Willie. These uh, nicknames they had for these guys. Anyway, so there, there you have it. Uh, that was the originator. Now, I believe... I missed a call in the first half, and I hope this is the caller calling back because I got it this time. Go ahead, caller. Hey, Frank J. Washington, and it was me, but I dropped the call. Sorry about that. Oh, that's okay. I forgot about it. I think I looked over there, and I didn't see anything. It just crossed, you know, went away. Anyway, here you are. That's all good. Yeah, you know, you were talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and as you know, or you may not, I've been blowing up phone lines in, in D.C., getting yeah. hung up on mostly. You and it's said. funny, because it's mostly by Republicans. Uh, Mitch McConnell's office, uh, both D.C. and I called one of his offices in Kentucky. They were just rude to me, hung up on me, and then just wouldn't take my call back. So oh, no, the Republicans, the, the, Republicans, the Republicans love this, okay? They love this because their corporate uh, masters have bought them all off and promised them lots of money for their uh, you know, next campaign. Right. And, you know, here's the thing. You know, help me out here. Uh, this fast track is it's illegal, correct? And because this is the premise that I'm putting forth is that it's illegal with fast track is is in violation of the Constitution. Am, am, am I right or am I wrong? Well, you know, I, I kind of looked into this and it depends now, Article 2, Section 2, Clause 2 is, is what I'm referring to. And the, the treaty, I have it right? in front of me. The treaty yes. deal, right? Well, it you says, see, and that's the thing, though. See, that's the thing. Now, is bribery illegal? I mean, it's in the Constitution, too, isn't it? Bribery. You're not allowed to do that. That's a high crime and a misdemeanor. Right? Okay, I understand. But look, I now understand. Now wait a minute, Jay. Let's let's just uh, you yes, ask sir. me now. I'm telling you, it, 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 but oh, lobbying's okay. okay, right? Lobbying's okay, but bribery's not. Okay, this is my point. 
Now, the Constitution says okay. bribery is illegal, but it doesn't say anything about lobbying, and that's okay. And you tell me what the difference is. Think about that for a while, because you're at the section where it says well, there treaties. Is no difference. treaties need to be uh, ratified by, you know, two-thirds of the Senate, right? Yes. Well, what yes. if we don't call it a treaty? What if it's just a treaty, but then we call it an agreement? We're going to call it an agreement. It's not a treaty. It's an agreement. It's got the same Well, you got me there. Else. Well, that's what they're doing. Okay, this is how they justify it. They'll say, oh, it's not really a treaty. It's an agreement. Well, well, but... Yeah. This, I'm t- you know, as, as, well, as shallow... Stick a fork in it, guys. Okay? Stick right. a fork in it. As shallow as that sounds. You know that little thing you put in the turkey during Thanksgiving <laughs> and it pops when it's in the oven? Yeah. It's popped. Yeah, well, that's the thing, you know, and, and the bad thing about the fast track, you see, they're not even talking about, oh, well, should we pass the Trans-Pacific Partnership or not? They're talking about, should we basically just say, hey, we don't want to read it, we don't want to know what's in it, you just tell mm-hmm. us if it's good, and we'll vote for it, and then we'll all find out how screwed we are after we vote for it. That's well, what they want to do. am I wasting my breath further? No, no. I, I mean, is that I, what I'm no, doing? I don't think you are. I don't think you are. I'm just, I'm just pointing out how grave an issue this is. And I don't think most Americans exactly. get it. I don't think most Americans get it. I, I really don't. I don't think they Well, understand. I just want to make sure I'm getting it. Oh. You know, the whole way, you know, I just want to make sure that I'm really getting it when I call these people. And because and, I don't cut corners with them. I, I'm not, I don't play Mr. Nice. Uh, I don't believe I have to. And so I just want to make sure I'm on the right track. I believe I am. I, I can basically start off with asking them if the Constitution, I'm sorry. I think you are too. I mean, I'm just. You know, well, you asked me, well, okay. what about the Constitution? Well, I'm right, just telling right. you, this is how they this is how they do things. Well, here's the thing, though. See, the Constitution is supposed to be the supreme law of the land, right? Right. I mean, I just went to high school. Okay, so no one has the authority. No one has the authority authority to violate it in any manner. Period. They can try and amend it, but that's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to violate it. Now, if they want to play word games and call it a partnership and not a treaty or an agreement and not a treaty, well, I see through that. I'm not going to let them get away with that. Well, me either, but I'm just I just want to know how hard it is when I call them and ask them, are they not lawyers, I ask. And and I, I ask them, what's their opinion? What's their position on it? And I get, well, they're looking into it and they're in meetings. I say, whoa, whoa, what what do they got to look into? What part of illegal don't they understand? What part of it? That's all they need to know. That's my. That's well, what I do. That's you know, what I tell a, them. There's a, and that's that's the whole thing. Am I wasting my breath? Maybe, but you know. So the thing is, at right now, right now, now, and this might be where, you know, I I don't know, you know, because I haven't heard exactly what you say, but you might be biting off more than is at issue at this second. Because what is at issue at this second is the fast track, okay? The partnership, you know, that that whole vote is down the road. What they're talking about voting on here soon is to fast track it. And this is something we don't want. You know, and this isn't just saying, oh, look, 
we don't want this partnership at all. Well, I can tell you we don't want this partnership at all, but that's not what I'm saying right now. Right now, I'm just saying we don't want this fast track. Make the Senate do their job. Exactly. You know, what is it about your job you don't like? Is it the pay? Then why did you spend billions now getting the job? Amen. If you don't want to do the job. You know, and that's really what it is, because I'm telling you, this this fast track, basically, and, you know, and here's not only do they don't get to amend it, they don't get to debate it, they just get to vote yes or no, and mm-hmm. instead of a two-thirds vote, it's a 51 vote, okay? Simple majority. Boom. Which is in direct violation of the Constitution. However, I, I know I keep bringing that up. However... If they want to get out of it, well, let's say we elect another president and a whole new Congress, and they go, boy, this is crap. You know, we got to get rid of this thing, right? Well, guess what? While it was only a 51 vote in the Senate and a simple majority in the House, which they got nothing to say about treaties at all, but mm-hmm. they're being included in this because it's not a treaty. Uh, but, but... To get out of it, it'll take two-thirds of both houses to get out of it. So you explain that to me. (laughs) Well, it's just another level of deceit, and it's just another level of deceit. It's unbelievable, the the deceit that just gets piled on, on top and on top. And and they don't care if they get caught. They're just going to – they don't care. I mean, they're just so – Frank – you know this, and I get outraged. They just—they're so blatant about it, and I'm just not one to sit by, and and let them. I, I have to make phone calls and, and write well, letters. I mean, that's basically all I'm doing. But I don't what, know. What's I, really me, sad, Jay? What's really sad? See, you're doing the right thing, and everybody around you, and and everybody everywhere in this country should be doing it, and not. Not just because, hey, look, uh, we are all so smart now. We, uh, you know, we study all this stuff. Just for the simple reason that, look, they did this with NAFTA. How did mm-hmm. that work out for everybody? Nobody's I remember. Hap- nobody's happy in this country. Okay, nobody's happy with the job situation. Well, the job situation was created by NAFTA and GATT. Okay, it's that simple. It really, really was, and and now here we Absolutely. are, and they want to now they want to pass NAFTA on crack, and you know mm-hmm. the American people sitting there with their no more middle class, no more jobs. What are your kids going to do? Where are they going to work? You know, and are they going to go to school and get educated and get a good paying high tech job? No, they're not. Right, because so they can get a student loan that can further bankrupt them. No, well, no, exactly. You I know what? They're not. It's not going it. to be there for them. See, he, look, the whole student loan thing is a scam anyway. But I mean, look, at sure least, it is. At least if you could go borrow money to go to school and you did get out and get a good job, okay. At least, all right. I get it. I get it. I wouldn't do it, but I get it. But sure. the thing is, this this agreement will open the floodgates to where the United States government does not decide how many H-1B visas are issued. The corporations do based on their need. 
In other words, if I'm Microsoft and I decide, well, I need a thousand programmers. Uh, I, oh, and I have a thousand programmers that were, you know, born and raised and educated right here in the good old U.S. of A. Well, you know what though? Mm-hmm. You know what though, Jay? They're pulling down maybe fifty, sixty grand a year. And I don't want to right. pay them that anymore, Jay. No, because so, they can get them same people that live in Grass Hutch in Sri Lanka. That's right. I'll, I'll get me some Indians in here, and they'll vote, they'll they'll work for thirty thousand or less. Uh, yeah, and and we'll put them up in some commune house, and and it's and it's cheap, you know, because they don't use indoor plumbing, you know, so they'll just like crap in garbage cans, and and it won't, and that's what they do. But it won't be up to the government anymore. It will be up to the corporations' need to decide. Okay. And, you know, it's kind of the same relationship the Federal Reserve has with the federal government. Okay, the federal government doesn't dictate anything to the Federal Reserve. They do what they please. That's quite the, you know, it's quite the opposite, yeah. They do what they please. And the thing is, and in return for letting them, uh, you know, the government uh, gets to borrow all the free worthless money they want. But with this, it's like, well, okay, the government may still issue visas. But they will be forced to issue visas at the request of corporations based on this agreement. I'm telling you, you know, and so people think that, you know, I understand. They really ought to wake up, man. There's some really bad things. Oh, and by the way, did you, did you think it might be a good idea to have our, you know, food labeled? You know, that's a big push going on in the United States, and most states are going to end up passing it eventually. That, you know, we want GMO labeling. We want to know if it's a GMO or not, right? Well, if this passes, you can forget about it. Absolutely. Well, I understand. I do. And and that's why I'm just kind of giving you an update as to what I'm doing. But right now... I'm going to continue to do so. I guess the only thing that I would suggest, okay, is right Mm -hmm. now, focus on the fast track. And and come up with all the reasons that's a bad idea. Okay, and that you want them to do their job. And uh, look, are you telling me you don't like your job? You don't want your job anymore? Because that can be arranged. I mean, you know, really. Because you were elected to do this. This is your job, not the president's job. He's got his own job. Exactly. You know, this fast track thing is BS. And this whole thing about, uh, you know... Oh, just vote for it. We'll all find out how screwed we are afterwards. Is is not working for me. Again. Worked before. Well, it did work before. So that's a, you know you can't blame them for trying. No, no, and they will just keep doing the same stuff over and over again that works. I mean, if it works, like, hey. oh man, that was easy. Holy moly! Well, well I know it's getting. Do you ever play? Uh, do you ever uh, play? Just, do you ever play sports? Yes, I F- have. Football. Yes. Okay. Well, in football. Uh, you're going to bring up the the Big Ten, uh, uh, nope. the Big Ten strategy no. uh, with two yards in a cloud of dust. No, it's it's the bottom line is when you decide to say, well, okay, uh, let's try running up right here, right? We'll run okay. by this guy. Okay, so you try it and man, you gain ten yards. Well, what are you going to do next time? You're going to keep running at that guy till he stops you. Until they adjust. <laughs> you know, I mean, why wouldn't you? It's like, hey, man, <laughs> sure. this is working. Let's keep doing this. You know, and that's Absolutely. exactly how they run it. Okay, they keep running it. Now, they might have gaps between, like, what? What's it been? 15 years since NAFTA? 92? Oh, that was back in uh, 92. Yeah, 92. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember, because you see, Jay, as you're making all these calls and stuff, that's how I was about NAFTA and GAD. I was standing out at the airport when Bob Dole, Mr. Viagra, landed oh, there to oh, do his little camp, just, campaign. Now you did it. Now you just you went too far. You mentioned <laughs> Bob Dole. I was out there with my, my stop NAFTA, stop GAD on the other side at the airport in the drizzling rain. And guess how many people were there with me? None. Uh, two, maybe? No, zero. Three? None. Nobody. Three. Nobody was there. You, yourself, there. and I. Yeah, and my big sign. And that was it, you know? But, hey, I even got on television uh, here locally uh, because I wrote a uh, rebuttal to a TV station because one of their, their, their commentators was all for NAFTA, right? So I wrote mm-hmm. them in a rebuttal, and they said, hey, you want to come in and read this on the air? <laughs> well, that's that's very impressive. I I am. I'm very. I'm just. Yeah. Well, guess what? I wish I could sometimes. It, it, it didn't work. I, right. Right. But but you you know. And what I'm saying but you were right. is you're what you're doing. Right. Uh, what you're doing might not work either, but that doesn't mean you don't try. Well, I want to leave you with this somewhat. Uh, you know. We all like to think that we're kind of smart, and I like to think that I'm intelligent. I stay up on the game, and you know that uh, you know current events. I know what's going on, but more and more, when I listen to your the show prior to this American Independence Hour, and I mean this very sincerely, I mean you really find out how dumb you are. I mean that show is. I, I'm just in awe every week, and I listen to it, and I look forward to it. It's it's an unbelievable show. And so when you think you're smart, you should probably listen to that show to find out maybe kind of how smart you're not, because you guys really lay it on the line, and it's 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 very, it's a very good show. Well, Rob, well, Rob West was a let great, you know that Rob West was a great guest, and he had a great topic, and that's absolutely. why he came on and gave his website. Sure, again. but you guys, Man. absolutely. But and you know, besides that, every week it's. I just wanted to put that out there. I don't get a chance to speak without much. If you could just pass that on to him, that I'm an admirer of the show. I think it's a great show. Oh, we'll uh, do. We'll I, do. I won't gush about it further. And plus, but, Al's got a blog, and, uh, uh, and folks, you listeners out there, if you listen to the show, you know, you can, you can, he he allows comments on his blog and the whole nine yards, so you can, you know, basically absolutely. participate yeah, putting your two cents, and, uh, uh, you know, and also, uh, uh, what do you, yes, adask.wordpress.com, and uh, you can, uh, you know, hey, we got smart and he listeners. he does respond. And he does respond. I've, I've commented, and he, he comments back, and so he's, he's very uh, receptive in, in that way. So, anyway, Frank, I appreciate everything you do. I uh, hope I don't take up too too much of your time. No, no, Jay, I'm glad to hear from you. you calling in. It encourages me that somebody's out there doing something. Well, I am. God bless you, Frank, and you have a great evening. You too. Thanks for calling in. All right, there's Jay from Washington, and he is out there doing stuff. And, folks, I hope you will, too. Look, you know, just pick up the phone. Five, you know, you don't have to spend more than five minutes a day doing it. And maybe it won't make any difference. But, again, you know, it doesn't mean you don't do it. Anyhow, I got to go. I'll be back again tomorrow. As always, thanks for listening. Anyway.
Second Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Welcome to the Reality Zone. I'm Ed Griffin. The program we are about to hear is taken from a recording of a presentation I made shortly after the publication of my book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, A Second Look at the Federal Reserve. And so here it is, as recorded live in Los Angeles, California, on November 18, 1994, my presentation on the Federal Reserve, The Creature from Jekyll Island. Thank you, Ernie, and thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Although, Ernie, I have to tell you, I think I like the short introduction better. <laughs> I guess there was a lot of traffic out there tonight, so we're getting started quite late. So I think I'll dispense with the usual jokes and all the preliminary remarks and jump right into the topic. And to try and give it some kind of historical perspective, I'd like to go back to the first century B.C., to a tiny kingdom called Phrygia. It was in Phrygia that there was a philosopher by the name of Epictetus. And it was Epictetus who said, Appearances are of four kinds. Things either are as they appear to be, or they neither are nor appear to be, or they are but do not appear to be, or they are not and yet appear to be. <laughs> There'll be a quiz on this. When I read that statement, I was sure that if Epictetus were alive today, he probably would be a Harvard professor of banking and economics. Because doesn't that sound like the kind of explanations that we get when you read through the Federal Reserve bulletins trying to tell you what the money aggregates are and that kind of thing? See, what Epictetus did was he took a relatively simple concept, but by the time he was through explaining it, we didn't have any idea what he was talking about. And this is so commonly done today by the experts. Nevertheless, I thought that his statement was pretty good because it provided us with a track to run on, kind of a theme for this presentation. Because you know, if there's anything in the world that is an appearance which is deceiving, it is the Federal Reserve System. In fact, it is one of those appearances of the fourth kind, which I'm sure you all remember, for those appearances which are not and yet appear to be. So I'd like to use that as my theme for this topic and come back to it now and then during the progress of this presentation if I remember to do that and use it as a punctuation point here and there and as a reminder of one of the most important aspects about the Federal Reserve System that there is to comprehend and that is that there are a lot of deceptive appearances going on here. I think the best place to begin our story is with the creation of the Federal Reserve System itself. In fact, that takes us right to the reason for the title of the book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. For those of you who are not yet familiar with the background of this story, you should know that Jekyll Island is a real island. It's off the coast of Georgia, 
And it was on that island in 1910 that the Federal Reserve System was conceived at a highly secret meeting that took place there. When things are done in secret, there's usually something to hide. And so I'd like to tell you that story and document it so that we can find out, first of all, that there was a meeting, that the Federal Reserve was indeed created there, that indeed there was a great deal of secrecy, and then we'll ask the question, why the secrecy? In 1910, Jekyll Island was completely owned by a small group of millionaires from New York. People such as J.P. Morgan, William Rockefeller, and their associates. This is where their families came to spend the winter months. It was a, a resort island. It was called the Jekyll Island Club. And on the island there was a magnificent clubhouse, which was the center of their social activities. You can visit that clubhouse today, as a matter of fact. The island has since been purchased by the state of Georgia, and the clubhouse has been fully restored. It's a beautiful thing. And if you take the tour, you can walk down the corridor there, and there will be a room, and on the door to that room is a brass plaque, and it says, the Federal Reserve System was created in this room. So there's no secret about this part of it. It's a matter of public record. So this is how that story came to pass. It was November of that year, 1910, when Senator Nelson Aldridge sent his private railroad car to the New Jersey Railroad Station late in the evening. And there it was in readiness for the arrival of himself and six other men who were told to come under conditions of extreme secrecy. For example, they were told to come one at a time, not to dine with each other on the night of their departure. They were told to avoid arriving at the same time if they could, if they should happen to show up at the same time, they were instructed to pretend not to even know each other. They had to avoid newspaper reporters because they were well-known people, and newspaper reporters often frequented the railroad station. Had they been seen, questions would have been asked, especially if several of them had been seen together. One of the men carried a shotgun in a big black case, so that if he had been asked where he was going, he was prepared to say that he was going on a duck hunting trip. The interesting thing about that is that we find out from his biography that this man never fired a gun in his life. He didn't even own one. He borrowed that shotgun just for the purpose of deception and camouflage. Even after they got on board this private railroad car, this pattern continued. They were instructed to use their first names only, to avoid last names. And a couple of them even abandoned their first names and chose code names. The reason for that was so that the servants on board the train would not know who these men were, because they were afraid if the servants had talked about it, word had leaked out in that fashion, then the purpose of the meeting could have been defeated. So absolute secrecy was essential all the way up and down the line. The private railroad car traveled for two nights and a day on a 1,000-mile journey to the south. And when they awoke the second morning, the car was on the siding at Brunswick, Georgia. There they took a ferry boat across the Inland Strait to Jekyll Island, then to the clubhouse. And for the next nine days, they sat around a table and they hammered out 
all of the important details of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. When they were done, they went back to New York. And for quite a few years after that, they denied that such a meeting ever took place. It wasn't until after the Federal Reserve System was firmly established that only then did they begin to talk openly about their meeting and what they accomplished there. Several of them wrote books on it, one of them wrote a magazine article, and they gave interviews to newspaper reporters. And so now, many years later, it's possible for us to go back to the public record and discover in minute detail exactly what happened on Jekyll Island in 1910. Now, who were these seven men? The first one I've already mentioned, Senator Nelson Aldridge. He was the fellow that owned the private railroad car. He was the Republican whip in the Senate. He was chairman of the National Monetary Commission, which was that special committee of Congress created to make a recommendation for legislative reform, banking reform, they called it. They wanted to reform banking in America because the American people were very concerned over the concentration of financial power into the hands of a small group of banks and investment firms in New York on Wall Street. That is what they called the money trust. That was a popular phrase. In fact, quite a few politicians had been successfully elected to office on their campaign promise to break the grip of the money trust. And that was one of the primary purposes of the National Monetary Commission, of which Senator Aldridge was chairman. He was also a business associate of J.P. Morgan. He was the father-in-law of John D. Rockefeller, Jr., which means, of course, that eventually he became the grandfather of Nelson Rockefeller, our former vice president. Remember, his full name was Nelson Aldridge Rockefeller, so he derived his middle name from his famous grandfather. The second man at the meeting was Abraham Piat Andrew, assistant secretary of the treasury. Later, he became a congressman, and throughout his career, he was very important in banking circles. The third man there was Frank Vanderlip, president of the National City Bank of New York, the largest and most powerful of all the banks in America. Representing the financial interests of William Rockefeller and the international investment firm of Kuhn, Loeb & Company. Henry Davison was there. He was the senior partner of the J.P. Morgan Company. Charles Norton was there, president of the First National Bank of New York, another one of the giants. Also, there was Benjamin Strong, head of J.P. Morgan's Bankers Trust Company. And incidentally, Benjamin Strong, three years later, when the Federal Reserve Act was finally passed, he became the first head of the Federal Reserve System. And finally, last but certainly not least, Paul Warburg was there, probably the most important man because of his knowledge of banking in Europe. Warburg was born in Germany, eventually became a naturalized American citizen. He was a partner in Kuhn Loben Company. But he was also a representative of the Rothschild banking dynasty in England and France, and throughout his whole banking career, he maintained close business liaison with his brother, Max Warburg, 
who was head of the Warburg Banking Consortium in Germany and the Netherlands. Paul Warburg was one of the wealthiest men in the world. But those are the seven men on Jekyll Island. And as incredible as it may seem, these men represented directly and indirectly approximately one-fourth of the wealth of the entire world in those days. And these are the men who sat around a table on Jekyll Island and created the Federal Reserve System. Does it arouse your curiosity? What's going on here? Now, for the skeptics who are here tonight, and I hope there are plenty, because if there aren't, I feel like the minister talking to the choir. I know there are always plenty of skeptics in my audiences, and that makes me feel very good. For the skeptics, you're probably wondering, did it really happen that way? Surely Griffin is exaggerating to make a point. Well, yes, it really happened that way, and I'd like to illustrate that by quoting for you just one piece of evidence here. This was taken from an article that was written by Frank Vanderlip himself that appeared in the Saturday Evening Post on February 9, 1935. Remember, Vanderlip was one of those at the meeting. And this is what he said. I do not feel it is any exaggeration to speak of our secret expedition to Jekyll Island as the occasion of the actual conception of what eventually became the Federal Reserve System. We were told to leave our last names behind us. We were told further that we should avoid dining together on the night of our departure. We were instructed to come one at a time and as unobtrusively as possible to the railroad terminal on the New Jersey Littoral of the Hudson where Senator Aldridge's private car would be in readiness attached to the rear end of a train to the south. Once aboard the private car, we began to observe the taboo that had been fixed on last names. We addressed one another as Ben, Paul, Nelson, and Abe. Davison and I adopted even deeper disguises, abandoning our first names. On the theory that we were always right, he became Wilbur and I became Orville after those two aviation pioneers, the Wright brothers. The servants and train crew may have known the identities of one or two of us, but they did not know all. And it was the names of all printed together that would have made our mysterious journey significant in Washington, in Wall Street, even in London. Discovery we knew simply must not happen. Well, why? Why the secrecy? What's the big deal here? What's wrong with a group of bankers going to a private location and discussing banking or banking legislation? And the answer to that is provided by Vanderlip himself in the same article. He said, if it were to be exposed publicly that our particular group had got together and written a banking bill, that bill would have no chance whatever of passage by Congress. Why not? Because the purpose of the bill was to break the grip of the money trust. And ladies and gentlemen, it was written by the money trust. It's as simple as that. Had the public been aware of that fact, at the beginning we would never have had a Federal Reserve System. 
That was like asking the fox to build the hen house and install the security system. Absolute secrecy was essential for that reason. Congress would never have gone for it. The public would never have gone for it. So there we're face to face with a very important fact about the Federal Reserve System that is not generally known today. It certainly wasn't known then. And that it was formed in secrecy because there was deception at work here. But there's more to it than that. Much, much more. Analyze for a moment the composition of that group. Doesn't it seem strange to you that these men were all together? Here we had the Morgans, the Rockefellers, Kuhn Loeb and Company, the Rothschilds, the Warburgs, all sitting around a table here coming to an agreement. Anything strange about that mixture? Well, ladies and gentlemen, these were competitors. What's going on here? Competitors sitting around, coming to an agreement. These were the giants in the investment field, which prior to this period were beating their heads against each other, blood all over the battlefields, fighting for dominance in the financial markets of the world, not only in New York, but Paris and London, everywhere. And they're coming to an agreement of some kind. This is an extremely important fact that is generally overlooked because it happened precisely at that point in American history which is sometimes described in our history books as the period of the dawning of the cartel. This was that point in American history when a major ideological transition was taking place in business. Big businesses which had grown to great power and size and prosperity through the process of free enterprise competition which is what made this nation great and allowed us to surpass the old world, now we're in the throes of converting their ideology to that of monopoly, the avoidance of competition. It was John D. Rockefeller I who said it. He said, competition is a sin. And it became the destiny of these people to avoid competition now, at all costs. Their life effort was to eliminate their competition if they could, if that was impossible then to buy them out, if that was impossible then to join with them in a shared monopoly which is called a cartel. And this was the period of history when that transition was taking place very rapidly in all industries. For the 15-year period prior to the meeting on Jekyll Island, these financial groups of which we are speaking had increasingly come together in joint ventures rather than compete with each other. They found that it worked. They liked it. And the meeting on Jekyll Island was the culmination of that process. And now we come to the second astounding realization about the Federal Reserve System is that it is not a government operation at all. It is, in fact, a cartel. They created a banking cartel and legalized it by law, passed a law to make it legal and to enforce it. That is an amazing understanding of the Federal Reserve that you're not going to find taught in your textbooks. It is a cartel. But there is a third element that is even more important than those two for an understanding of what it's doing to us. 
And the third element that we must understand is that this cartel went into partnership with the government. Cartels often do that to enforce their cartel agreements, but in this case they did it in spades. Now when a partnership is formed, there has to be a reason, there has to be a benefit for the partners or they're not going to do it. So it's a legitimate area of inquiry for us to know and to ask, what's the payoff to these partners? Why did they do that? Why is the government in it? What does it get out of it? And then we'll ask and find out why the cartel is in it and what it gets out of it. In order to see how that functions, we must examine now the mechanism by which the Federal Reserve System creates money. How does money come into being in our country? I call it the Mandrake Mechanism, named after that comic book character of the 40s, Mandrake the Magician. Before I go into this, I need to warn you folks about one thing. Don't try and make sense out of this, because it doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to make sense. Just remember that this is your good old-fashioned scam, and you'll be able to understand it pretty well. Furthermore, I want to tell you that I'm going to make this sound very simple because I'm stripping out of it all of the banker language and all of the accounting terminology, and I'll speak it as best I can in plain old English. But I can assure you, even though it may sound like it's ridiculously simple, I can assure you that every part of this is 100% accurate from a technical point of view. So this is how it works. It starts with the government side of the partnership. It starts, in fact, in Congress. Congress needs money, a lot of money, far more than its income. Taxes only make up a small percentage of what Congress spends. Well, how can they spend more than they take in in revenue? Here's how it works. Congress, let's say, needs a billion dollars for today's expenditures. So they go down to the Treasury and they ask for the money. And the Treasury official says, you guys have got to be kidding. We don't have any money here. You spent it all back in February or March. Everything we took in in taxes is gone. Not to worry, they say. Together they walk further down the street to the Federal Reserve Building. Now the Fed has been waiting for them because that's one of the reasons it was created. They walk in and the officer at the Federal Reserve opens up his desk drawer, pulls out a big checkbook, and he writes a check to the United States Treasury for one billion dollars and signs it and gives it to the Treasury official. Now we need to ask a question at this juncture. Who put that billion dollars into the checking account at the Federal Reserve so that they could lend it or give it to the government. Where did that money come from? And the amazing answer is, there is no money. In fact, technically, there isn't even a checking account. There's just a checkbook. <laughs> and that billion dollars springs into being precisely at the instant that the officer signs the check. Now, if you and I were to do that, we would go to jail. But they can do it because Congress wants them to do it. This is, in fact, the payoff. 
This is the reason the government is in this partnership, because the government has instant, easy access to any amount of money at any time without having to go to the taxpayer and ask for it in the form of direct taxes. If they had to go to the taxpayer and say, well, we want to spend this, this, and this, and we're going to raise your taxes another $3,000 per family this year, they'd be voted out of office. Not a popular thing to do. They like the mandrake mechanism. But that's why the government is in it. But why is the banking cartel in it? To answer that question, we'll go back to that billion-dollar check and follow some of the money. The Treasury official takes the billion-dollar check and deposits it into the government's checking account, which is, of course, in a Federal Reserve Bank, so-called. And at that instant, the computers show that the government made a billion-dollar deposit, therefore it has a billion dollars in its account, therefore it can now write up to a billion dollars in government checks, which it starts to do. We'll follow just a $100 check that it writes to the postal worker that delivers our mail. He takes it now and puts it into his checking account in his personal commercial bank down the street. Now the money is finally out of the Federal Reserve Bank, so-called, out of the government side of this partnership, and it's finally into the banking side, commercial bank. $100 has been deposited, so the banker goes over to the loan window and opens it up, and he says, attention, everybody, we have money to loan. Somebody just deposited $100. We have money to loan. And this makes everyone joyous, because that's one of the reasons they go to the bank, is to borrow money. It's nice to know there's money to loan. So they line up for the money. But they're a little concerned because it was only $100, but the banker says, don't worry, we can loan you up to $900 on that. How is that possible? How can the banks loan $900 when there's only $100 in deposit? Well, it works like this. The Federal Reserve System says that the banks must keep no less than 10% of their deposits in reserve. The bottom line is that the $100 that was deposited there is 10% of $1,000, therefore the bank can loan up to $900, which is the difference. Now where did that money come from? The answer is the same. There was no money. That springs into being at precisely the point at which the loan is made. Now, let's analyze this. an important difference here between these two functions. The money that was created out of nothing and given to the government was spent by the government for its projects. On the other hand, the money that was created out of nothing for the banks, they didn't spend that for their projects. They loaned it to us for our projects. But they collect interest on that loan. So the bottom line is that they collect interest on nothing, which is not too shabby. This is why the banking cartel is in the partnership, because all of this becomes legal.
interest on nothing. What are the consequences of this? This money that is created out of nothing goes out into the economy and these new dollars dilute the value of the old dollars that were already out there. It's like pouring water into the pot of soup. It dilutes the soup. When you pour all these new dollars into the economic pot, it dilutes the dollars that are there and so prices start going up and up and up. And we have this phenomenon of inflation, which is the appearance of rising prices. I emphasize the word appearance because in reality prices do not rise. What's really happening is that the value of the dollar is going down. If we had a money which was based on gold or silver or anything else that had intrinsic tangible value that they couldn't just create out of nothing, you would find that prices would remain stable over a long period of time. And to illustrate that point, it's interesting to know that if we had lived in ancient Rome, we would have been able, with a one ounce gold coin, to buy a very fine toga, a handcrafted belt, and a pair of sandals. Well today, what can we buy with a one ounce gold coin? We can go into any men's store and buy a very fine suit a handcrafted belt, and a pair of shoes. The real price of those items hasn't changed in thousands of years when expressed in terms of real money. But when expressed in terms of those paper things we carry around, Federal Reserve notes, we call them dollars, they're not, they're Federal Reserve notes, they buy less and less and less because there are more and more and more of them being pushed into the economic pot of soup. We're still not done with the analysis. So we lost some purchasing power. Where did it go? Did anybody get it? People don't ask the question, did somebody get my lost purchasing power? It's as though, well, it just evaporated. It went up into heaven or someplace. It's just gone. No. For every loser, there is a winner. Somebody got your lost purchasing power. Who? Let's track it. Those people who got the lost purchasing power were the ones who were right at the point where the new money was injected into the pot. Because they got their hands on it first, and at that point it had full value. But by the time they spent it and gave it to the next person and then they spent it and started moving out toward the edge of the pot where most of us are, then it lost its value. But the ones up at the nozzle were the ones that had gained on our lost purchasing power. Who are they? Well, it's clear that the government is number one, isn't it? Because that first check, that billion dollar check that we tracked, went to the government, number one. They got it first. What about the money created on the banking side of the partnership? Who got that first? Well, the borrowers, didn't they? The ones that lined up at that window. That was the nozzle. Now, this is something that we all recognize. In times of inflation, everybody says it's wise to borrow. Why? 
Because you borrow dollars, but you pay back in dimes. Inflation erodes that thing. You have contracts, and you pay back with money that has less and less value. So the poor guy that gets your payment at the end of the line has lost his purchasing power, but you gained it because you were smart enough to borrow in times of inflation. That's the way it works. That's one of the reasons they entice people into debt, because it's the smart thing to do. What they don't tell you, however, is that what you are gaining from this process, you are turning around and having to pay to the bank in the form of interest payments on that loan. Interest on nothing. The bank is actually capturing your gain through interest payments. Now, sometimes you have paper profits. Oh, look at the value of this real estate. Look at the value of this stock. People are paying more and more for it. But don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, that economic conditions can change and these paper assets can contract as well as expand. And when the economy does contract, as usually it does, always does, then people are wiped out. They don't realize that the boom-bust cycles that we have had since the creation of this Federal Reserve mechanism is like a sawtooth. The economy expands slowly for long periods of time, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and people think, this is going to go on forever. And then, boom, it comes down, usually very quickly. A lot of people lose their assets. And then it starts again for another 20 or 30 or 40 years. Oh, it's a wonderful ride, and then, boom, it comes down. And every time it comes down, people lose their their investments. Notice, however, when you go to the bank and they give you something which costs them nothing to create, what do they want from you in return? Signature on the dotted line for your car, your house, all your assets, right? So if you can't make your payments of this nothing money, they get your marbles. They always win. In times of whether it's expansion or contraction, it doesn't make any difference. It was planned that way, carefully worked out. These people are scientists, ladies and gentlemen. This is the bottom line that those who gain your lost purchasing power are the two groups that comprise the partnership in the Federal Reserve System, the government and the banking cartel. Now, this process is a tax. I don't care what you call it, inflation, or what name you want to give to it, it is a tax. If there's anything you remember about this presentation this evening, I hope it is this, that inflation is a tax. This is why these two groups are in the partnership. On the government side, they are able to tax their citizens in any amount, unlimited amounts of money, without the people even knowing that they are, in fact, paying a tax. And on the banking side, they're able to collect perpetual interest on nothing. Well, let's go back to Jekyll Island. We have a lot to learn on that island back in those days because all of what's happening today was germinated right there around that table for nine days. They had a particular problem, which was what to call this creature. You see, this partnership between government and banks was not new with the Federal Reserve System. It actually was conceived in Europe in the 16th century. 
and it was experimented and then finally perfected with the formation of the Bank of England in 1694. From that date forward, all of the governments of Europe had used this kind of a mechanism. Of course, they didn't call it the Mandrake mechanism like I do. They have another name for it, and that is a central bank. So, when it came time to bring the central bank mechanism to America, these fellows on Jekyll Island knew that's what they were doing, but they couldn't call it a central bank because Congress was already on record as saying they didn't want that because they thought that what we needed in this country was something that was unique for American, the American economy. And these men debated what to call it, and this was their strategy. They said, first, let's call it federal to make it sound like it's a government operation. Next, let's add the word reserve to make it seem like there are reserves somewhere. Next, let's add the word system. This was far more important than it seems today because remember, the primary concern was this concentration of power in New York. So they had to convince the American people that they were creating a system of banks spread over the geography of the whole country. First they were going to have 10, then they said, no, that's not enough, we need 12 regional banks to diffuse this power, or the appearance of diffusing it. Well, we realize today that what we got was not federal at all. There are no reserves anywhere. There's not a system in the sense of diffusion of power, and the Federal Reserve banks aren't even banks. So on all four words, we have appearances of the fourth kind. It was brilliant deception, and now the next step was to sell it to the public. The first draft of the Federal Reserve Act was called the Aldridge Bill because it was sponsored by Senator Aldridge, and uh, Paul Warburg warned him against that. He said, Nelson, if you put your name on this bill, it's going to be voted down in Congress because you're so clearly identified with big business interests. And Warburg was right. Congress put thumbs down on it. The bill of the big bankers. Well, it was a minor setback. They took their bill. They scrambled the paragraphs around a little bit, took Aldridge's name off of it, and found a couple of Democrats to sponsor the bill. Now, this was different, because everybody knew that the Republicans represented big business. But they also knew that the Democrats, on the other hand, represented the common man. You know, the working man, the fellow on the assembly line, like Ted Kennedy. So they found a couple of millionaire Democrats to sponsor the bill. Carter Glass in the House and Senator Robert Owen, who was himself a very successful banker, sponsored the bill, and now it was the Glass-Owen bill. Next, Aldridge and Vanderlip began to give speeches and interviews to newspaper reporters condemning the bill that they had written. They said, this bill will ruin the banks. It'll be terrible for the nation. And of course, by the time that got into the newspapers and the average person read that, they were saying, 
golly, the, the big bankers don't like this bill very much. It must be pretty good. You know, you have to give these fellows credit. They weren't stupid. They didn't get to be where they were by being country bumpkins. They understood mass psychology. They understood politics. And they played their cards exceedingly well. Meanwhile, these same individuals were out of their own pockets financing so-called grassroots study clubs that were springing up all over the country, holding public meetings, printing and distributing pamphlets extolling the virtues of the Federal Reserve Act. They gave huge amounts of money to some of our better-known universities in America, new departments of economics, handpicked their own people to be the professors to chair those departments. And then those professors began to give speeches and write scholarly essays about how wonderful the Federal Reserve System was. And then at the insistence of Paul Warburg, they added a few excellent provisions to the bill, provisions which seriously restricted the ability of the Federal Reserve System to create money out of nothing. And Warburg's associates said to him, Paul, what are you doing? We don't want that in our bill. And his reply was classic. He said, relax, fellas, don't you get it? Our object is to get the bill passed. We can fix it up later. It was because of those provisions that they won over the support at long last of William Jennings Bryan, who was the head of the populist movement. He had opposed this bill from the beginning. But when he saw those excellent provisions in there, he said, oh, well, I guess now I can support this bill. And with his collapse of opposition, the road was now clear. And everybody was for, almost everyone, except a few lone voices, was for the Federal Reserve. And indeed, they did fix it up later. Since the Federal Reserve Bill was passed, it has been amended over a hundred times. And every one of those excellent provisions were long ago removed, and many more have been added, which greatly expanded the power and reach of the Federal Reserve System. And so, with this professional, brilliant strategy and deception, it is no surprise that eventually the public and Congress was solidly for the Federal Reserve System. And the bill was passed on December 22, 1913, and the creature from Jekyll Island finally moved into Washington, D.C. I'd like to focus for a moment on what are the objectives of the Federal Reserve System, because you know, we're told that the purpose of the Fed is to stabilize the economy and to put an end to chaotic banking. One of the more popular textbooks used in our colleges and junior colleges today is a textbook on economics written by Paul Samuelson. And here's what he says. He says the Federal Reserve sprang from the panic of 1907 with its alarming epidemic of bank failures. The country was fed up once and for all with the anarchy of unstable private banking. Well, that's what he said, and that's what the students are learning. Let's not challenge that for the moment. Let's just take it at face value, because this is the official doctrine, isn't it? The purpose of the Fed is to stabilize the economy and to protect the people. 
That's why they're raising our interest rates right now. That's what Greenspan says. Why is he doing this? To help people, right? To stabilize the economy so we won't have massive inflation. It's for you folks that he's doing this. See? That's what he says. And if you're trying to figure it out on the basis of these official pronouncements, you'll never get it. Let's just take this official pronouncement at face value for a moment and see how well it's doing. Let's give it a report card. Since the Federal Reserve was created, it has presided over the crashes of 1921 and 1929, the Great Depression of 29 through 39, recessions in the years 53, 57, 69, 75, and 81, a stock market Black Monday in 87. We all know the corporate debt is soaring, personal debt is greater than ever, both business and personal bankruptcies are at an all-time high. Banks and savings and loan associations have failed in larger numbers than ever before. Interest on the national debt is consuming half of our tax dollars. Heavy industry has all been but replaced by overseas competitors. We're facing an international trade deficit for the first time in our history. 75% of downtown Los Angeles and other metropolitan areas is now owned by foreigners, and over half of the nation now officially is in a state of recession. Now that's the report card of the Federal Reserve System after 80 years of stabilizing our economy. I don't think it's even controversial to say that it has failed to meet its stated objectives. The only controversial issue is why has it failed? And my answer is because those have never been its true objectives. What are its true objectives? Well, what are the objectives of any cartel? To enhance the profit margins of the members of the cartel and to stabilize their position in the market. If we hold that in mind, now we get a different picture folding before us. Now they're not failing at all. They're succeeding. There were three objectives that the bankers had, the ones on Jekyll Island. They had three objectives in 1910 through 1913 that they wanted the Federal Reserve System to accomplish for them, and they were very verbose on the topic. And here they are. They said first they wanted to stop the erosion of their power away from New York. That's right exactly the opposite of what the Federal Reserve System was supposed to accomplish, that's what they wanted. This is a good point to mention that when we talk about the cartel, I'm not talking about the small banks that are struggling for survival under the Federal Reserve System. Remember John D. Rockefeller said competition is a sin. And one of the purposes of the cartel was to put a check on the competition from these new banks keep them in their place, eliminate them if possible, and to do so through regulation, setting up conditions that the big banks could afford to handle, but the small banks could not handle. So I'm not talking about your local banker now. I'm talking about the New York cartel. That was objective number one. Objective number two was to reverse the trend of what they call private capital formation. 
Now that's banker language for a trend in which individuals or businesses use their own savings for something instead of going to the bank and borrowing money for it. At the turn of the century, there was a trend toward private capital formation in business particularly. Businesses were holding back a certain portion of their dividends each quarter, putting that money into a sinking fund, and then as the capital formed or as they saved more and more money, then they used their own savings to build a new factory or to launch a research and development project or whatever. And the banks were extremely concerned over this trend. They wanted to entice businesses back into the banks to borrow money, and they knew that the only way to do that is to lower interest rates. And you may say, well, why didn't they just lower interest rates? Because you're thinking in terms of today, not then. Today it's easy if you're the Federal Reserve System to lower interest rates because they have the lever to move it either way, up or down, totally within their control. But in 1913 there was no lever because the money in those days was backed by gold and silver. And you can't hook a lever onto that kind of money. Under those conditions, interest rates are the result of the natural forces of supply and demand. People cannot control it. I mean, individuals or committees cannot control it. Millions of people interacting in freedom control it. Supply and demand. But it's not subject to political control. And they knew that the only way that they could get people into the banks is to artificially depress the natural interest rate. How do you do that? They said that the answer was through a flexible currency. They said what the nation needed was a flexible currency to meet the demands of industry. Well, what is a flexible currency? It's not this stuff that bends. You need a dictionary to understand some of these things. A flexible currency, ladies and gentlemen, is money made out of nothing. That's what that means. Now, you see, the trick is not too complicated. If you can create money out of nothing, you don't have to charge an awful lot of interest on it to show a profit. So, with a flexible currency, they could lower the interest rates below the natural level, still make plenty of profit on it, and entice the businessmen back into the banks. So the goal was a flexible currency. That was objective number two. And objective number three was to pass on the inevitable losses of the banks, pass them on to the taxpayers in the name of protecting the people. Now, those are the true objectives of the Federal Reserve. Let's now issue another report card and see how well it did. Did it keep control with the larger banks in New York? And the answer is yes. We have big banks in the West and in the South, but they are nothing compared to these mega banks in New York, which stride the world with offices in Peking and Moscow and Africa everywhere. The big banks continue to dominate. It gets an A on its report card for retaining control in New York. What about reversing the trend toward private capital formation? Boy, did it ever. Interest rates have been pushed down over periods of time. They're so attractive that individuals and corporations thought they were crazy not to take advantage of those 
low interest rates. Why save your money? That's stupid. So they were all enticed into the banks because of a flexible currency. And then, of course, they get loaned up to the eyebrows and something happens in the economy and you can't service your debt anymore, you go bankrupt. Right now, there are many corporations just and individuals just hanging in there by the skin of their teeth because they're trying to service their debt. And it's an amazing fact that many of these large corporations are now sending more money every quarter to the banks as interest payments than they send to the stockholders as dividends. Just think about that. The banks who made the money out of nothing are making more money out of large segments of our industry than the people who worked for their money, saved their money, invested their money, risked their money to purchase ownership shares in those corporations. And the Federal Reserve System gets an A on its report card because indeed, with flexible currency, it reversed the trend toward private capital formation. Were they able to pass along their losses to the taxpayer in the name of protecting the people? Maybe you missed that part of it, but it's called bailout. The game called bailout is played something like this. Whenever one of the large banks gets into trouble because someone it has loaned money to, either a big corporation or a third world country, can no longer pay its debt. So the bank is in trouble. It goes to Congress and it carefully explains to Congress that it must bail out that corporation or that third world country because otherwise it's going to hurt the people of America. If that venerable corporation is allowed to fold, look at how many thousands of jobs will be lost. People will be put on welfare. They'll be out of work and that'll hurt the people. If that country down in South America cannot pay its loan, Uncle Sam better pay it for him because otherwise the venerable bank in New York will have to write the loan off of its books and then technically it'll be bankrupt. It may have to close its doors. It would collapse. And look at the thousands of people who have money in that bank who would be hurt by that. And who knows, that bank is such a big bank. If it fell, it might be the first domino causing all the other banks to fall. And we could have a major recession or depression on our hands. And look how the people of America would suffer. And so Congress dutifully runs to the front and says, yes, yes, we don't want any of that to happen. And they vote the funds to guarantee the loans or in some cases to make outright payments to keep that river of interest payments going to the banks. Not the small banks, the big banks. Here are some of the games you may have missed. Penn Central Railroad was bailed out in 1970. Lockheed Corporation also in 1970, Commonwealth Bank of Detroit in 1972, New York City in 1975, Chrysler Corporation in 1978, First Pennsylvania Bank in 1980, Continental Illinois, the largest of the banks so far, in 1982, and all of those countries in the third world who can no longer make their interest payments are now making their payments because they got the money from the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank which got it from the Federal Reserve System, which got it from you and me through the Mandrake Mechanism. 
And my final topic before I reach the conclusion is one that I think you'll find interesting, and that is usury. In the old days, the biblical times, usury was defined as interest on a loan. Any interest on any loan was usury. Well, in modern times, that's been redefined to mean excessive interest on a loan, not moderate interest, because, we, well, this is in keeping with the concept that if we work hard for our money, we save our money, we don't spend it, we sacrifice its pleasure, and we loan it to somebody for their venture, we're entitled to a reasonable return for that sacrifice. A reasonable interest seems fair and logical to most people. But what is this thing excessive interest. Thomas Edison said, people who will not turn a shovel full of dirt on the project nor contribute a pound of materials will collect more money than will the people who will supply all the materials and do all the work. I wondered about that when I read it. I thought it was Tom exaggerating, so I got my calculator out and I punched in the numbers. I took, for an example, a $100,000 house to be built. I assumed the $30,000 was going to go for the land and the architect's fees and the permits. That $70,000 would go for the actual construction of the house, the labor and the materials. I assumed that the buyer would go to the bank, put 20% down, take out a 30-year loan at 10% interest. I punched in the numbers and I found out that the borrower will pay to the bank in interest $172,741 as compared to $70,000 paid for those who did all the labor and did all the work. In other words, the bank will earn two and a half times as much money as those who produced. You may say, well, yes, but don't forget the time value of money. When you save money and you sacrifice its use and 30 years is a long period of time and all this, no, not this money, ladies and gentlemen. Nobody worked for this money. Nobody sacrificed. Nobody saved it. This money was created out of nothing. And I suggest that $172,741 interest on nothing is excessive. <laughs> I think it's time for a new definition of the word usury. Any interest on any loan of fiat money, meaning money made out of nothing. Now this example of a $100,000 house, I should point out to you, is a grain of sand in the Sahara. This is nothing. You have to multiply this process by every house in America, by every hotel in America, every high-rise office building in America, every jet airplane, every automobile, every factory, every warehouse full of materials, every farm building, all the farm equipment. And you are talking about a river of unearned wealth 
perpetually flowing into the banking cartel that is so wide that you can't even think across it in your mind. The numbers are beyond comprehension. Where is this money going? You get the mental picture that maybe it's going into a big lake someplace. There's a big dam and it's building up. All this money is accumulating and these people are getting richer and richer and richer. Wrong. Doesn't work that way. When a person has all the wealth that he can possibly want or use for the pleasures of life, what is left? Power. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, they're spending this money, this river of wealth is being used to acquire power over you and me and our children. They are literally buying up the world with it. And I don't mean they're buying up the real estate and the hardware. They're buying up control over the organizations, the institutions, through which people live and act and rely on for leadership and opinion. Technically, in sociological terms, this is called a power center. These are the power centers of society, the groups through which people work. And this is where that money has been going, is to acquire control over these groups and institutions by buying up influence and control over the people who run them. And they're spending the money on that. That means that they're buying up politicians, political parties, television networks, cable networks, newspapers, magazines, publishing houses, wire services, motion picture studios, universities, labor unions, church organizations, trade associations, tax-exempt foundations, multinational corporations, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, you name it. Any group, any institution which exercises influence has been a target for control. And they have a lot of money to spend to acquire that control especially those organizations and individuals which supposedly are in opposition to themselves. This process has been going on not only in our country and in a more or less parallel manner in the other industrialized nations of the world, but ladies and gentlemen, in the so-called third world or underdeveloped nations, it has gone on so much further than you can ever imagine. In fact, it is now complete. These countries have been purchased already with this money. Did you ever wonder what's going on there at the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank? You don't hear much about that. Every once in a while, on the back page of the newspaper, you'll read that Congress authorized another hundred billion dollars to go to the IMF, to be loaned to some little country or given to them, and they explain to us that this is to raise their standard of living. Well, you don't believe that either. That is an appearance of the fourth kind. It's not going to raise their standard of living. If it is, if that's the true purpose, they're not doing a very good job of it, are they? Because, you know, if you look at those nations, after all of these decades and the expenditures of hundreds of billions of dollars, you cannot point to one nation 
that has had its standard of living raised one iota. In fact, in most cases, it's the other way around. The reason is simple. That's not the purpose of the money. The money does not go to the people. It does not go to the businesses in those countries, which might have a chance of raising the standard of living. It goes to the politicians in those countries, to the governments. And it is used specifically to strengthen their control mechanisms over the people, to build collectivist totalitarian systems. Countries that start off as inefficient dictatorships get all the money from the United Nations and end up as efficient dictatorships. The money is used to strengthen their army and to strengthen their bureaucracies. These people, for the most part, couldn't care less about the standard of living of their subjects so long as they live well, so long as they have their mansions and their yachts and their jet aircraft and their trips to New York to the United Nations and their suites at the Waldorf Astoria. Ideology means nothing to them. Socialism, communism, capitalism, fascism, what does it matter? Where is the money? This is it. And we're now dealing with second and third generation welfare families here. You know how hard it is to break a welfare family in our own country after the second and third generation. We have governments around the world that are now second and third generation welfare to the UN. There's not a chance in the world they're going to break away from that money. They wouldn't know how to operate any other way. It's a way of life. They're addicted. And they now are in place in the new world order where they're just waiting for you and me to show up. In fact, that's the other side of this. Not only has this transfer of wealth from America to the third world not raised their standard of living, but it has indeed helped to lower ours. And that, too, was part of the plan. In many ways, they're trying just to waste money to reduce our standard of living. A strong nation is not a candidate to surrender its sovereignty, but a weak nation is. If America can be brought to her knees, if she can be hungry, if she can be filled with despair, if there can be riots in her streets and she doesn't know where to turn, then she perhaps will willingly accept totalitarian measures from a United Nations peacekeeping force. The blue helmets might even be welcomed. Or rescue with an international monetary unit that has purchasing power for a while. This is how it's being played out, ladies and gentlemen. And so I want to just conclude by saying that the name of the game is not wealth. It is power. So what are we going to do about this? Well, it's obvious we have to slay the creature. Obviously, that's the starting point. We can't allow this creature to continue. It has to be eliminated. But how are you going to do that? We're going to do it in Congress. Congress created the Federal Reserve System, and Congress can abolish the Fed. But we have to build some fire under the chairs of those congressmen 
We have to get some new faces in there. I don't care whether it's Republican or Democrat or Independent or what have you. The titles are not important. It's what they believe in, the principles. Those are the important things. But we do need an informed electorate out there. It's not going to happen unless people know about these issues and education is our necessity. Sounds kind of boring, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be nice if we could just jump right into politics? But people won't know what we're talking about unless they understand the issues. We need an educational army out there, ladies and gentlemen. And it's time to enlist. As Patrick Henry would have said it, in fact, as he did say it, our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? The bad news, the really bad news, is that time is running out. We used to talk about these things. I remember not too long ago, I would talk about some of these issues and people would look at me and say, you got to be kidding. That could never happen in America. And now, when I talk about these issues, they lean forward and say, how much time do we have left? It's visible all around us. The new world order is descending around us. I mean, they're preparing a, a, a world court of justice, a world taxing authority, a world monetary unit, a world army. As we speak, over half of our standing military right now is serving under foreign officers at the UN, and the process is rapidly moving. So, ladies and gentlemen, time is running out. Whatever you plan to do for your country or for your freedom, do it now. But the good news is, the really good news is that we still can do it. We still have time. We still have freedom. Instead of complaining about how bad things are or how late the hour is, we should rejoice over the fact that we can still meet as we are here tonight. We can still talk openly. We can still advocate such things as the abolition of the Federal Reserve System. We still have elections. We should rejoice on that fact. All we have to do is go out and work like our very lives and our freedom depended upon it. Because they do. And I think a good place to begin is to send Epictetus back to Phrygia and to convert that grand appearance of the fourth kind into a disappearance of the first kind. Thank you very much. I was invited to give you a taste of a typical law school classroom experience here today, and I thought I would take advantage of this opportunity to do something that's been on my mind for a while, to stand up and to proudly say, God bless America, God bless the Bill of Rights, and thank God for the Fifth Amendment. I'm not ashamed to say I'm proud of the Fifth Amendment, and I'm, not, I'm proud to admit on camera and on the Internet that I will never talk to any police officer under any circumstances, with all due respect, sir. <laughs> I'm doing something really extraordinary here today, something you'll almost never see another law professor do as long as you live. I'm really putting myself on the spot here. At my, this was my idea. By my invitation, I have given up half of my time, approximately. I'm giving equal time and the last word to an expert who really knows something about what I'll be talking about. So I'm opening myself up to the possibility that he will contradict me. I was a criminal defense attorney when I was in private practice. So I want to make sure, in fairness to you, if I'm misleading you or giving you a slanted or one-sided 
presentation, you'll be able to get the last word from somebody else. I'm sure he'll have a lot to teach all of us, including myself. The Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution provides, no person shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. And this unfortunate amendment has gotten a bad rap in, in recent times, much of it uh, tragically and unnecessarily through, as you may have heard, the headlines. Uh, there was a recent, recent Regent Law School graduate who was in all the news for a couple of weeks. She was an outstanding former student of mine, and she really got quite a lot of undeserved flack for the fact that she chose to exercise her right to remain silent when the Senate wanted to ask her certain questions that arguably might have tended to incriminate her. All of the world was aghast. The Christian community in particular looked at this and said, how could a Christian do such a thing? How could a Christian take the Fifth Amendment? And I said, you go, girlfriend. I do the same thing. I'll do it every time. And I want to talk to you about why that's true, but first a quick listening test. Let me read to you something that uh, was taken out of the newspaper this morning, and I want you to listen to it closely. And I'm giving you a heads up. I'm warning you in advance, which is not fair to you. Not fair to me, but I'm giving you a, to, I'm giving you a warning that I'll be quizzing you on this in just a few minutes. This will test your aptitude for legal study and legal practice. Listen closely, it won't take long. Last night, agents of the Norfolk Police Department found three victims of an apparent murder dead in an apartment in the East Ocean View area, the apparent victims of a gangland-style slaying, and possibly the victims of gang-related violence. The police are investigating this as a possible murder and suicide, but right now suspect that the three were all killed by the same individual. No suspects have yet been identified in the slaying, but veteran police detective George Brooke has confirmed that police are following up on evidence pointing to the possible involvement of an off-duty naval officer as the perpetrator. The bodies, which were found by the apartment manager at about 8 o'clock in the morning, appear to have been slain sometime earlier in the same evening, probably sometime between midnight and 2 o'clock in the morning. That's it. Those are all the facts I'll ask you to remember, and it won't be for very long either. Let's see how well you do. I'll be quizzing you in just a few minutes. Now, here's the easiest question you'll ever get from a client in all the days of your life. Question, hey, the police are here. They want to talk to me. What should I do? Well, I could give you my answer to that question in case you haven't already guessed it, but why don't we go to a real expert? Justice Robert Jackson. A prosecutor's prosecutor. Like me, he began his private practice in Buffalo, New York, years before I did. And after that, he served as general counsel for the Bureau of Internal Revenue, the U.S. Department of Treasury, the Security and Exchange Commission, Assistant U.S. Attorney General for the Tax Division, later the Solicitor General, and the Attorney General of the United States, and then the Chief U.S. Prosecutor for the Nuremberg Trials. That's an impressive resume. Years later, when he was a justice on the Supreme Court, Justice Jackson stated, quote, any lawyer worth his salt, today we would say his or her, will tell the suspect, his client, in no uncertain terms to make no statement to the police under any circumstances. There's the title of my talk. I'm here to explain to you the surprising and somewhat counterintuitive and admittedly unlikely reasons why Justice Jackson was right. I'm reminded of this because I'm amazed, we're all amazed, by the frequency with which we see newspaper articles coming out all the time from people who really ought to know better who say, well, I'll, I'll talk to the police. I mean, after all, I'm, I'm a senator. I'm, uh, I'm O.J. Simpson. I'm, uh, I'm an experienced, highly polished individual. I've got a lot of experience with public relations, even criminal defense attorneys. There was a local news story here in the Virginia Pilot just a couple of months ago about an experienced criminal defense lawyer who ended up getting convicted of criminal assault because he talked to the police. He was accused of having assaulted another attorney in the hallway. There were no other witnesses to this. A woman said that he grabbed her by the throat during an argument over a case. He denied it. Uh, at trial, it was his word against hers. He said, I did not even touch her. But unfortunately for him, when the police had approached him earlier and said, would you be willing to answer some questions? He said, sure, why not? I'm, a, I'm an attorney. I'm a criminal defense attorney. I'm savvy. I'm sophisticated. I've got oratorical prowess. I'm, I'm accustomed to dealing with the police, by all means. And then there was a conversation that was not recorded. 
When the case went to trial, it was no longer his word against hers because when he testified at trial, I never touched her. The officer took her to the stand and testified, well, when I met with him, he said he did put his hand on her throat, but just as a joke. Then he had to take the stand again and say, that's not true. I never said that. I never admitted to you that I, now it's his word against two people. Who's telling the truth? We'll never know for sure. But he was found guilty. Now, here's part of the problem. The heart of the problem, as Justice Breyer on the U.S. Supreme Court explained in 1998, is, quote, the complexity of modern federal criminal law codified in several thousand sections of the United States Code and the virtually infinite variety of factual circumstances that might trigger an investigation into a possible violation of the law make it difficult for anyone to know in advance just when a particular set of statements might later appear to a prosecutor to be relevant to some investigation. Uh, one expert on criminal law recently noted that estimates of the current size of the body of federal criminal law vary, although it has been reported that the Congressional Research Service can no longer even count the current number of federal crimes. That's right, even the federal government has lost count. These laws are scattered over all 50 pages of the U.S. Code, encompassing roughly 27,000 pages. Worse yet, these statutes often incorporate by reference to the provisions of administrative regulations. Estimates of how many such regulations exist are even less well settled, although the ABA thinks there may be nearly 10,000. Here's one of those 10,000 federal criminal statutes on the book that you probably never heard about. It's called the Lacey Act, 16 U.S.C. Section 3370. says it's a federal offense for any person to import, export, transport, sell, receive, acquire, or purchase any fish or wildlife or plant taken, possessed, transported, or sold in a violation of any law, treaty, or regulation of the United States or any Indian tribal law or any state or any foreign law. People have been convicted in federal court for violating this statute because they brought back a bony fish from Honduras, not knowing that Honduran law, not American, but Honduran law, forbade the possession of the bony fish. People have been convicted under the list law because they were found in possession of a, what's called a short lobster, a lobster that's under a certain size. Some states forbid you from possessing a lobster if he's under a certain length. It doesn't matter if he's dead or alive. It doesn't matter if you killed it or if he died of natural causes. It doesn't even matter if you acted in self-defense. Did you know that? Did you know it can be a federal offense to be in possession of a lobster? Admit it. Raise your hand if you did not know that. There's the problem. And that's only one of 10,000 different ways. You know, the government gets pretty upset when people like me instruct the client, people like me and Justice Jackson. Don't talk to the police. Don't answer any questions. But, you know, they can't have it both ways. You people, you've got 10,000 different ways of convicting us. Good for you. But, you know, with the bitter comes to the sweet, with the good comes to the bad. That's 10,000 different ways my client might unknowingly implicate himself in some sort of a criminal transaction. One of the reasons I decided to give this talk, I recently received a phone call from a former student of mine, a regional law school graduate, who may be watching this online. We're putting it on the Internet. And he told me, hey, I've been approached by the Internal Revenue Service. They want to ask me a couple of questions. They ask if I'd be willing to. Uh, but they say that I'm not a suspect. And I know in my heart I don't think I've done anything wrong in violation of the Internal Revenue Service provisions. Lord have mercy. <laughs> there's no man on earth, there's no, there's no woman in this country who can honestly say with complete confidence, I know I have never violated any provision of the Internal Revenue Code. He said, but, but they, they say I'm not a suspect and I know I've done nothing wrong. It's okay if I talk to him? I said, no, no. You tell them you will not talk to them without immunity. I explained to him why that was true and they never, he never heard from them again. <laughs> okay, why you should never talk to the police? Let me just spell it out for you. Let me make it plain to all of you. These are the top ten reasons. I, I don't want to really lie to you. I don't really have ten. I don't have time for ten. But I've got time for eight and that'll be close enough. <laughs> Number one, and this really ought to be good enough. Contrary to what you laymen instinctively and naturally suppose, it cannot help. There is no way it can help you. Plenty of folks think that it can, and they're always wrong. You cannot talk your way out of getting arrested. Officer Brooke, you've interviewed thousands of criminal suspects. Have you ever, how many times in your experience, have you approached someone, asked if you could ask them some questions because prior to the interview you had some evidence pointing to his possible guilt? And because 
of the extraordinary persuasiveness and eloquence with which he articulated his innocence, you said, oh, sorry, never mind. Bank call, my bad, I won't. And you, he talked you out of arresting him. You know the answer to that. <laughs> never. Never. It never happens. I've often asked other criminal defense attorneys, in all of your experience, have you ever once had a case where you looked back in hindsight and said, thank God my client talked to the police? They laugh at me. They laugh at me. They say, you've got to be kidding me. It cannot help you. You can't talk your way out of getting arrested. And contrary to what you might suppose if you never studied the rules of evidence, what you tell the police, even if it's exculpatory, cannot be used to help you at trial. Because it's what we call hearsay. Under the rules of evidence, specifically Rule 801D2A, if you want to look it up, uh, everything you tell the police, as the saying goes, can and will be used against you, but it cannot be used for you. From time to time, I've known attorneys who tried to call to the stand a police officer and say, Officer, would you tell the jury what my client told you because what my client told him is actually good for my case? If you tried that at trial, the prosecutor will object that it's hearsay, and the judge will agree. The police will not be allowed at your request to tell the jury what your client told him, no matter how good it may be for your case. It cannot help. And that ought to be good enough reason. That ought to be reason enough to keep your mouth shut. But if you're not persuaded, let me go talk about a couple of others. Number two, obviously one of the most obvious, if your client is guilty, as many of them are, but even if he's not, even if he's innocent, he may well admit his guilt with no benefit in return. Now, of course, many of you are thinking to yourself, well, what's so wrong about that? I mean, shouldn't guilty people be confessing? Confession's good for the soul. It's good for law enforcement. It's good for the prisons. Yes, yeah, sure, all those things are true. And like the rest of you, if I or anyone close to me is ever the victim of some sort of a serious crime, I hope they get the right guy. I hope they convict him. I hope they put him away. We all feel that way. Hey, but what's the rush, friends? You don't got to admit your guilt the first time they come by to meet with you. In federal court, 86% of all defendants plead guilty at some point before trial. If your client is guilty and really ought to punish and really ought to have a, uh, go through some sort of a cleansing act of contrition and fess up and admit his guilt, there'll be plenty of time to do that. They almost always do. No need to rush. No need to tell the police something. Wait and see if we, perhaps your client can work out some sort of an arrangement where maybe he'll make some sort of compensation to the alleged victim or maybe he'll be able to get some sort of a discount in his sentence. And he'll be able to treat, he'll be treated fairly then, like everybody else who had the benefit of a good lawyer who said, please do not talk to the police. And don't forget, by the way, even if, even if your client only admits things that the police already knew, you might think, well, what harm can it do? He says he wants to talk to the police. All he wants to do is admit that he was there, but the cops know that he was there. All right, go ahead and tell him. Well, how can it hurt? It might hurt if the police officer becomes transferred to Minnesota or deceased or injured or comatose or cannot be located by the time of trial. The case will be dismissed if there's no confession. But if your client admits two things, uh, that confession is freely admissible against him and can be a basis for getting him convicted all by himself. Senator Larry Craig can explain all of this to you. <laughs> The Innocence Project of the United States has confirmed that in more than 25% of all the cases where an innocent man was convicted and then later released from prison after he was exonerated by DNA evidence, in more than a quarter of those cases, these innocent people, people we know to be innocent, made incriminating statements, delivered outright confessions, or pled guilty. How do they do that? He'll tell us all about it, I trust. Here's a couple of famous examples. You can just ask them. You don't have to take my word for it. There on the left was Eddie Joe Lloyd. He was convicted in 1984 of the murder of a 16-year-old girl in Detroit after he wrote to police with suggestions on how to solve various recent crimes. During several interviews, police fed details of the crime to Mr. Lloyd, who was mentally ill, and they lied to him and convinced this mentally ill man that by confessing, he might help them smoke out the real killer. He later signed a confession. It gave a tape-recorded statement. The jury delivered it less than one hour before convicting him on the basis of this confession. 
confession. There was no other substantial evidence against him. The judge said, I'd hang you if I could, but the death penalty was not available in Michigan at the time. But after almost two decades in prison, he was released after DNA evidence proved that this man was innocent and had falsely committed, confessed to a crime that he did not commit. On the right is Earl Washington who was released from prison just a few years ago here in Virginia after spending 18 years behind bars for, after being committed of a rape and a murder that we now know he did not commit after having been exonerated by DNA evidence. But be this man, Mr. Washington, who was in fact confirmed to be mentally retarded, was able to confess to several crimes at the request of the police, some of which we know he could not have committed. That's the problem. Some of you are thinking to yourself, well, none of this concerns me because I'm not guilty of anything and I never will be and I will never represent people who do. Okay. Let's talk to you people, you innocent folks. Those of you who have never committed a crime and never will, and none of your clients will either. And, no, and you wouldn't go out with a girl who did. Fine. You better not talk to the police either, okay? Because number three, we'll put the guilty behind us. Forget about them. Let's talk about innocent people. Number three, even if your client is innocent and he denies his guilt and almost entirely tells the truth, odds are good he will easily get carried away and tell some little lie or make some little mistake that will hang him. This is human nature. He gets in there, it's a stressful situation. Imagine a perfectly innocent client. The police say he's been guilty of a murder. He's totally innocent, as innocent as any one of us. So he goes in there, he meets with the police, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. I, w I was nowhere near there. I, I, I didn't kill him. I've never killed anybody. I don't have a gun. I've never had a gun. I've never touched a gun in my life. I was nowhere near Virginia Beach that, that, that night. Uh, and, and that last line was a lie. He went over the top. He was getting carried away. He got into this groove. He started saying all kinds of things, almost all of them true, that he knew would tend to exculpate himself then he got carried away and just said one thing that wasn't true, and unfortunately for him, they can prove that it wasn't true. He may be convicted on that basis alone. But let's say, you, let's say, well, that's not a problem. I'll tell my client only to tell the truth. I, if I've met with him, I know he won't lie to the police. He won't make any mistakes. Okay, that's still no guarantee you won't be getting into trouble. Because even if your client is innocent and only tells the truth and doesn't say anything that is false. Now, already, mind you, we're pretty well nigh into fantasy land. The odds of this being, anybody being able to pull this off are really quite slim, no matter how innocent they may be. But just for the same, let's pretend. Let's assume he gives the police nothing but the truth, and he is totally innocent. He will always give the police some information that can be used to help convict him. Always. For example, suppose you tell this to the police. Here's what your client tells to the police in his denial of guilt. I don't know what you're talking about. I, would, I didn't kill Jones. I don't know who did. I wasn't anywhere near that place. I don't have a gun. I've never owned a gun in my life. I don't even know how to use a gun. Yeah, sure, I never liked the guy, but who did? I wouldn't kill him. I've never hurt anybody in my life, and I would never do such a thing. Let's suppose every word of that is true. 100% of it is true. What will the jury hear at trial? Officer Brooke, was there anything about this, your interrogation, your interview with the suspect that made you concerned that he might be the right one? Yes, there was. He confessed to me that he never liked the guy. And then the prosecutor will put that up in big letters and he'll say, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, it's pretty clear that we've got the right guy here. We've proven that he was in Virginia Beach that night. That's opportunity. And remember, Officer Brooke admitted that after extended questioning, he was finally able to get the defendant to admit that he never liked the guy. There's your motive. Motive plus opportunity. Wham, bam. Please. <laughs> but jury beat it up. And innocent people get convicted this way sometimes. How often? Hopefully not too often, but we know what happens. The United States Supreme Court, don't take my word for this, in Ohio versus Ryan, the Supreme Court of the United States said, quote, one of the Fifth Amendment's basic functions is to protect innocent men who otherwise might be ensnared by ambiguous circumstances. Truthful responses of an innocent witness, as well as those of a wrongdoer, may provide the government with incriminating evidence from the speaker's own mouth. See, it's not just some criminal defense attorney telling you this. Even the Supreme Court says I'm right. In the fact, under the facts of that case, by the way, in Ohio versus Rhino, a child tragically was died, apparently the result of shaken baby syndrome. The question was who had shaken this baby to death. 
And one of the possible suspects was a babysitter who had spent some time with the child that week. The babysitter's story was, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I did not kill the child. I, don't see, I did not see it happen. I don't know who shook the baby. It was never me. I never did anything of any violent nature to the child. The Ohio State Court said, well, you've got no Fifth Amendment privilege. You, by your own admission, told the investigators that you've done nothing wrong, that you were not involved, so obviously your answers can't incriminate you. The United States Supreme Court reversed and said, well, that's not true. Even though the ch this babysitter denies shaking the child, denies seeing the child die, denying knowing, denies knowing how the child died, this babysitter, by her own admission, apparently was being, was, the, the government wanted to ask whether the babysitter might have been with the child at some point that week, during the week prior to the death. And that answer, although by itself not sufficient to convict anybody, could help convict her. That means she's got a Fifth Amendment right to refuse to answer to the question the court held, because it could be used to help convict. Allman versus United States, the Supreme Court said more than 50 years ago, eerily prophetic. They said too many Americans, even those who should be better advised, view this privilege as a shelter for wrongdoers. They too readily assume that those who invoke it are either guilty of crime or commit perjury in claiming the privilege. That's not true and it never has been. But it gets worse. Can it get worse? It can. Number five, even if your client is innocent and only tells the truth and does not tell the police anything incriminating, which by the way is almost impossible to pull this off. I mean, imagine talking to the police for two, three, four hours, and, and somebody like him can't somehow manage to extract from you something that could be used to help convict you. That would be extraordinary. I don't think anybody's pulled it off. But, but even if you could pull it off, there's still a grave chance that his answers can and will be used to crucify you in a court of law if the police, no offense, don't recall his testimony with 100% accuracy. All right, now this brings us back to that pop quiz I warned you about. I told you earlier, remember, it's only been a few minutes. And you weren't up all night, and you weren't the subject of physical duress. You were in the relaxed setting of a classroom here. You were given heads up, advance notice that you would be quizzed on this. Question. We'll start with a couple of easy ones. Remember that article I read you about that? How many people did the police find shot to death last night at that Ocean View apartment that I told you about? A, 1, B, 2, C, 3, D, 4. Who says A? B. C. Get this, so get that with a camera. Show us, get this, move that camera around. Look how many hands we've got there for C. Okay, D, you're all wrong. Everybody who raised their hand, everybody who raised their hand, uh, you are the kind of people who should never talk to the police under any circumstances for as long as you live. Why is C not the right answer, by the way? If you know, raise your hand. Yes? Because you didn't say the cause of death. Excellent. I didn't say anybody was shot. I didn't say gun, bullet. Shooting, firearms, didn't use any of those words. But I don't blame you if you thought that I did. This is the way the human mind works. We hear things, we fill in details. I said gangland style slang. That may or may not imply something, but it doesn't mean that anybody was shot. And that's the problem. You see, even if your client is innocent and only tells the truth and doesn't tell them anything incriminating and his statement is videotaped, his answers can be used to crucify him. You might say, wait, how can that happen? I insisted, in my insistence, I called the police and I said, look, if you want to talk to my client, you can talk to him, but only if you videotape the whole thing. I don't want there to be any debate between the two of you over what happened. Okay, we'll videotape the whole thing. If the police don't recall their questions with 100% accuracy, he'll be convicted on that statement alone. For example, suppose a man goes to the police, they say we're investigating a possible murder, a shooting, and the guy says, quote, I don't know who killed Jones, Officer Brooke, with all due respect. I, it wasn't me. I've never touched or fired a gun in my life. How can that help incriminate this man? How could that possibly be used against this man to help convict him? You would think it's inconceivable. 
But it's as easy as pie. All the officer has to do is read the statement to the jury, and then the prosecutor says, Officer Brooke, was there anything about that statement that confused you or surprised you? Yes, there was, he says in a moment of sinister high drama in the courtroom. And what was that? And then Officer Brooke turns to the jurors and he says, I never said anything about a shooting. I said we were investigating a murder. He was the one who brought up a gun. Then you turn to your client, and your client says, that's not true, that's not true. I remember, he was the one, or one of the cops, I was with them for three hours, one of them in the car said something about, they said they had a witness that I was the shooter. Okay, I'll put you on the stand. And then the, the, your client testifies, no, 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 they did tell me shooting. I mentioned, they mentioned it before I said anything about a gun. They brought it up first. And then the police said, that's not true. And now what, it's your word against theirs? For what? You're gambling with your client's life. And police officers can very easily make a mistake like that, just as so many of you did just a few minutes ago, about whether you recalled having heard me say something about somebody actually being shot. Police make mistakes, innocently, inadvertently, unintentionally, any statement, no matter how exculpatory it may seem on its face, can be used to crucify you all by itself if the police are either willing to lie, not likely, or if they just have an innocent misrecollection of the details as to what they did and did not tell you before you told them what you said. All of these, by the way, all of these problems disappear if you take Justice Jackson's advice and say, thank you very much, officer, but no thanks. <laughs> how about this one? Here we go. Now, here's the most surprising of all. I've saved the most surprising one for a last. Let's suppose you've got the following scenario. Your client's thinking about talking to the police. He acts like, he says, I've got nothing to hide. They think that I killed somebody in Virginia Beach last night. Well, we're, and, and, this is what, and this is what your client tells you in confidence. I don't know who robbed that store. It wasn't me. In fact, I've got a pretty good alibi. I wasn't even in Virginia Beach that night, last night. I was four hours away visiting my mother in the Outer Banks. Unfortunately, no, I did not pay for gas with a credit card. I used cash, and so I've got no witnesses that can prove I was there except my word, and of course, Mama, for what that's worth, which is nothing. Uh, but, uh, so your client says, well, so the police want to talk to me, and I want to seem cooperative, so what I'll do is I'll tell them that I was in the Outer Banks last night. Now, there's nothing on his face incriminating about any of that. Let's assume, by the way, that you believe with all your doubt you've given your client a polygraph exam. You've known him for years. You've been going to the same Bible study for 30 years. You know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's telling you the truth. And he's not admitting anything. He's not admitting motive. He's not admitting opportunity. He's not admitting that he was there. How on earth could this come back to haunt us? How on earth could this come back to be used against us? Be honest. Raise your hand if you really think the answer to that question is, I can't see how it could possibly be used against me. You're afraid I'll call on you, right? I won't call on you. Well, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. You're always wrong. Everything you say, every time you talk to the police, you will regret it. You see, the problem is, here it is. This is the last point. I think it's almost Even if your client is innocent and only tells the truth and doesn't tell the police anything incriminating, and the entire interview, questions and answers are, are videotaped, your, even his truthful answers can be helped to use crucify even an innocent man if the police, through no fault of theirs, end up in the possession of any evidence, even mistaken and unreliable evidence, that anything your client told them was false, even if in fact it was true. Again, going back to this example from a moment ago. Let's suppose I, tell, I go ahead and I meet with the police. I got think I got nothing to hide. I tell them I was in the Outer Banks last night, officer. How can that be used to convict me? By itself, it cannot. It cannot help at all by itself. But what if I later find out, to my horror, after I put my cards on the table, that they've got a witness, a girl that I went to high school with, an unimpeachable witness. We've never been enemies. She'd have no reason to lie. She swears she thinks she saw me in Virginia Beach last night a couple of blocks away from that store, about an hour before it was robbed. Now, her testimony by itself isn't going to help the prosecutor. Hell, if she's all they've got, I'll get this case thrown out before trial. But if, like an idiot, I talked to the police and I told them the truth, I told them I was in the Outer Banks, and now, lo and behold, tragically, it turns out they've got a witness, a false, mistaken, confused, but sincere, incredible witness, who could testify that I was here in Virginia Beach, now they're likely to get a conviction.
Because what they'll do, I've just turned this cop and this woman into the government star witness. They'll put her, hell, they'll put Officer Fruk on to testify about how my client lied to him about being in the outer banks. And then they'll put on this girl, this is the girl who otherwise would have not even helped with their case at all, who will testify, no, that's not true, that was a lie. I saw Mr. Dwayne's client here in Virginia an hour before the robbery, not so far from the store. By herself, she would not have helped the government in any significant way. But what I have just done, you see, is given them the other part of the puzzle. And now I'm doomed. Just ask them. I, I, close, I close with this example. Here we have a couple of recent celebrity examples of why it is that even people who admit nothing always end up denying it. I mean, sorry, they always end up regretting it. On the left, we have Martha Stewart. She was the victim, the subject, of an extensive government investigation that was looking into the possibility that she was guilty of violations of certain federal laws, securities laws, fraud kinds of things. They couldn't pin that on her, but they were able to get a conviction because she denied it. Talking to the police and later to some of the shareholders, she said, no, it's not true. I was not guilty. So they charged her with lying to federal investigators, and they got a conviction, and she was sentenced to five months in prison. Marion Jones on the right side, another person who would still be out today if she had always uh, taken the advice that I'm giving you now. She was asked if she had ever used steroids, a controlled substance. And instead of taking the fifth, she said, no, I never took steroids when I won those Olympic gold medals. Uh, Later on, it turned out that she was lying. She worked out a deal. She pled guilty. She admitted that she was lying. And she, over her strenuous, tearful objection, even though she has two young children, was just recently sentenced to prison for six months. The guy who sold her the steroids, the pusher, he got only four months. But she got six months because she lied to the police and said that she did not do it. You see the problem. Michael Vick, who originally pled guilty, as you know, to these charges with respect to the operation of this dog, uh, combat sort of operation at his home. Uh, at sentencing, like many other criminal defendants, even though he eventually pled guilty, at sentencing, one of the things, one of the reasons his sentence was a little harder than it might have otherwise been, the judge said, was because when he initially met with the police, he lied to them and said, I didn't do anything. I, I didn't do it. I don't know what you're talking about. Even guilty people, but not only guilty people, will always end up regretting talking to the police. Um, so, my advice to you, Justice Jackson was right. Any sane, competent lawyer in his right mind will always tell every client under all circumstances, I don't care if you're innocent. I don't care if it's the truth. If it's the truth, great. We'll tell the jury all about it. There'll be time enough to put our cards on the table. But before we get there, I haven't seen yet what the police got. They may have mistaken and confused witnesses who will contradict even the truthful stuff that you say. We have no way to know, no way to predict whether the information that you give them, even if truthful and reliable, will end up unwittingly dispelling our demise. So keep your mouth shut. Don't answer any questions. Let's take the fifth. You'll be glad that you did. God bless America. God bless the, bless the Bill of Rights and the geniuses who bequeathed it to us. But now, in fairness, I give equal time, or what's left of equal time, <laughs> to a police officer who will explain to the extent to which, if any, he agrees or disagrees with anything I've got to say. I, didn't, I have no idea to know what, what he's going to say, but it'll be interesting. Here, let me give him the microphone. Give, let's give him a hand. <laughs> officer George Brooke, the Virginia Beach Police Department. I cannot talk that fast. <laughs> Not even interviewing. I'm going to take the podium here, Please. Professor. Because I took notes on some of the things you said. And everything he said was true. Okay? And it was right and it was correct. And I'm just going to give you a few ideas. I'm going to tell you a few examples. But first, I'm going to give you a little information. Uh, as was said earlier, I've interviewed thousands of people. I've interviewed people with foreign police departments. When I was in the Navy, I was in law enforcement. and. Uh, as a criminal investigator. Thank God we're in the United States because most interviews in Italy, Spain, and so forth start out physically, okay? There's no police, uh, police abuse over there. They can do pretty much what they want, anytime they want, anyhow they want. So 
just be aware of that and be thankful for you. Biggest question I was asked when I first, I am a 3L, and there's some of my classmates in here. Best day is coming up, May 10th, when we get to leave. So those of you that are applying, and I told a couple of people this, you think it's hard getting into law school? Try getting out. Okay? A couple of things I was asked. How do I quit from getting speeding tickets? Very easy question. Quit speeding. Okay? But something Professor Dwayne brought up, are any of you guilty of anything? How many of you drove here today? Anybody go above 55 on the interstate? Anybody drive at home and go above 55 on the interstate? Because if you if you, what are you stay, your hands for? I told you. Don't... <laughs> And there, and there you go. And people are inherently honest, and that's their biggest downfall. Okay, they, they really are. Or they want to tell their story. And if you drive 55 on the interstate where it's 55, the only thing you're going to do is meet the person behind you because they're going to rear end you and you're going to get run over. Okay, so that, that's a fact. But everybody does something that they can get in trouble for. I can follow as a police officer when I was uniform. I could follow a car, however long I needed to, and eventually they're going to do something illegal, and I can pull them over. And justifiably illegal to pull them up with. So just be aware of that. Don't, don't think you're so innocent in such a thing. Uh, when you get stopped for a traffic ticket, everyone likes to be somewhat honest. And what's the first thing the police officer asks you? Do you know how fast you're going? If the speed limit's 35, you'll say, oh, 38, 40, because you want to be kind of honest even though you're doing 50. <laughs> you just said 38, 40. You just admitted to breaking the law. You just confessed. So they can go to court with that, with a confession that you were exceeding the speed limit. Okay, so think. You need to think about those things, and when you do become defense attorneys, which I may, who knows, you need to think about those things for your clients. The other thing you need to think about your clients, and this is going to seem very terse, people are stupid. Your clients are stupid. And I've had defense attorneys come up to me, as a matter of fact, one on a uh, motion to suppress just Tuesday, come up to me and tell me his client was stupid. Okay? They're very straightforward. They do foolish things. They talk to the police. You guys need to be aware of that. Now, in my past, and it wasn't exaggerated, I have interviewed thousands of people. I have a, uh, I've arrested and dealt with over a thousand felony, well, actually, more than a thousand felonies, probably about 20, or, no, about a thousand felonies, 2,500 misdemeanors. 98% of a conviction rate, 80% of them I don't even have to go to court. Why? Because there's confessions. Because they confess. So these people have no problem. The hardened criminals have no problem talking to the police. People like to tell their story. And they'll sit in that room and think about it. You're picked up by the police. You're in a little room. There's one chair here. There's a desk. There's another chair. What's the thing you want the most right at that point? to get out of that room, to be out of that room. Think the police officer's, police officer's shift is ending in 15 minutes. Does the police officer want to get out of that room? My overtime rate's $58 an hour. Do I want to get out of that room? I have no problem. I'll stay there for 10 hours. I'll, tell, I'll take that $600. Okay, so I have no motivation to want to leave. You do, and that's, that's how we get you to try to talk. I have my job. My job is to develop probable cause, develop a good case, a great case is a case with a confession, get it to the Commonwealth attorney so that they can prosecute the case with little if any effort. 
And the Commonwealth attorneys love those cases, the little any effort, because they come with a stack of files that high in court every day. So they love those cases. That's my job. The defense attorney's job is to hope they get to their client before I do and make sure they don't talk to me, no matter what. Give you an example, and this will go right along with what Professor Duane was putting up his examples. I had an interview that went something like this. Were you involved in the burglaries? No, I had nothing to do with them. You didn't have anything to do with them? No. You were in a car with all this stolen stuff in it? You had nothing to do about it? No. You knew it was there? Yeah. Okay, now we got possession of stolen property, felony, okay? But you had nothing to do with it? No. So what did you need the money for? Well, I had to pay some of my court costs from another thing I got in trouble for. Oh, so he took the money from stealing the stuff. I have enough to charge him now with burglary. Simple as that. Well, did you see the picture on that camera of the house with the uh, Christmas decorations? This is a real case scenario. Yeah, did you go in that house? No, I didn't go into that one. <laughs> so there's ways around it. There's ways to get around people who try not to talk to you. And again, as Professor Duane said, if you wanted to go and say you wanted to go into a boxing match, $100 if you win. You've never boxed before. You have to face somebody who's an Olympic boxer. You're going to lose. You're going to face somebody who's been interviewing people for, in my case, 28 years. You're going to lose, unless you're purely innocent. Now, on the other side of it, I don't want to put anyone that's innocent in jail. But I try not to bring anyone into the interview room that's innocent. And there are a couple that I have let walk away because they were innocent. Okay, the interviews. How do we approach the interviews? There's a number of ways to approach interviews. There's a number of types of people that I deal with. First thing I do, anyone know what they get told first when they're in an interview? Miranda. Miranda warning. Okay, it's not a right. You don't have a right to Miranda. Those rights have always been there. It's called the Constitution. You're just teaching. You're doing a real quick class on the Constitution for these people. Usually they don't listen to it. And this is the way I give my Miranda warning. Look, I have to tell you this. Just pay attention. Okay, they're usually sitting back or they're very attentive. You have the right to remain silent. Do you understand that? Yes. Anything you say may be used against you in a court. I don't have to say it will be. I say it may be. Okay, and they get that. You have a right to an attorney, and if you can't afford one, one may be appointed to represent you. Got that. You can decide not to talk, quit talking to me at any time and exercise these rights. Do you understand that? Sure. Now, before I do the primary thing that's needed with those rights, that's to get a waiver, I say, now, before you say anything, let me tell you what I know. And over all the time I've had to put together what this individual was supposedly involved in, and I only say supposedly because Professor Duane's sitting over there, <laughs> that this individual was involved in, I will tell the story that I've put together, and it'll be pretty close to what happened. And I can see that it's pretty close to what happened because that individual starts slumping down in their chair, or they'll put their hand to their face, doing this in their mind, oh my God, I'm going to jail forever, okay? And I can see it. I said, now that you know what I know, do you want to talk to me? And why do I do that? Because if I didn't do that, is if I said, do you want to talk to me, they'll say no. So I give them the time to think about, and then comes the next phrase. Now, before you start talking to me, let me tell you the difference between a lie and a truth. If you lie to me, and I get before the judge, and I tell the judge that you were dishonest with me, that's just not going to make him happy. 
But if I get before the judge and tell him you're honest, straightforward, willing to take uh, responsibility for your actions, that is going to help you. That's not a lie, though. That is true. In Virginia Beach courts, it will help them. You know, they may not get five years. They may get three years. They're still going to prison. Or they're still going to have a felony, but it will help them. And then I have to determine what kind of person I have. And there's two types. There's the one, like I mentioned to you earlier, where I have to talk to them, talk to them about different things, get into their own skin, as the word is, and try and get them to talk to me and discuss things. I had a sexual assault case. I had to talk to the guy how hot the woman was, and I understand where he was coming from. And when, that, when I said that, we were buds. And he started talking to me. And he's still sitting in prison. Okay, so you've got to get in there and you've got to go places. The other side is, I can't try and act like that individual acts. Okay, I can't try and act like what we call lovingly a hood rat. I can't try and act and talk like him. Because I'm an older white guy. We don't talk like that, and that would be an insult. And you can't insult people. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter where they grew up. It doesn't matter where they're from. You can't insult people like that. You have to be yourself. So you have to get in, into their mindset and the way they're thinking and have a discussion with them. The other type of person is the one that likes to tell a story. This young man, great man. I, I love him to death. He didn't go to jail because I went to bat for him because I felt sorry for him. He was a newlywed. He was having money problems. Former Marine. I said, tell me what happened. And he told me this beautiful story about what happened. What he had done is he had sold a piece of equipment that his ex-employer had had that he had stolen. He told me the beautiful story of what happened about him finding it on the side of the road and all that kind of stuff. And I didn't even question about him after he finished his whole story. Very unplausible, but very beautiful story. I sat there and listened to it for 15 minutes. I looked at him and I said, you stole the stuff from your boss, didn't you? Yes, sir, I did. <laughs> I had nothing. I really had nothing except the fact that he had sold it. So there's, there's those types of people. And then the third type, the one who tries to be the hood, who tries to be the criminal, who cries like a baby when they walk in a jail, but when they're on the street, they're as tough, tough as rocks. You go in there with your paperwork, you sit down, and you just start doing paperwork. And usually I have a videotape sitting on top of it just for measure so they think I have a videotape. And you just sit there. Don't tell them Miranda. Just sit there and wait for them to start talking because they will. They want to talk. People want to communicate. They hate silence. That's why when people speak you hear, uh, hmm, when they're talking because they need to fill that void with something. People hate silence. So that's the other one. A couple tricks of the trade. And I'll share this with you for when you may go in an interview room. If you're going to be attorneys, it could happen. Uh, videotapes are wonderful things. I use a tape recorder. How many of you think if you saw a tape recorder, that would make you not want to talk? <laughs> yeah. They talk, and this is how I do it. I bring the tape recorder and say, look, I'm going to use this recorder because my writing's terrible. I can't read it if I write it down, so I'm going to use this. Is that all right with you? Don't have to ask me. Is that all right? Yeah, no problem. So I turn it on. And they watch the tape recorder. And if I have a problem with the interview, I'll say, I want to talk to you for a second, just off the record. Everyone here off the record? It's like a unicorn. No such thing. 
<laughs> I pick up the tape recorder, I borrow this, I pick up the tape recorder and I go click and turn it off and set it right in front of them and they look at the tape to make sure it's not turning. Interview rooms have microphones in them and video cameras and everything that happens in there is recorded. My tape means nothing <laughs> because I'm recording it anyways. And then I start talking to them quietly and they start telling me stuff. And they start, they do something like that, except it's crying. <laughs> More crying. So that's another way. So, so you see how there's an unlevel playing field here. Even with, with the most educated individual, there's an unlevel playing field. If you talk to the police, everything's going to be written down. If you get pulled over for, for a, a ticket, they give you the ticket and you pull off. You ever see the cop pull off right after you? Usually not. That's because on the back of their ticket, they're writing down everything you said. And it's going to come into court if you go to court. Everything that's said, I write down. Every phone call I make has to have a listening device on it. Is that illegal? How many parties need to know that a uh, phone conversation in Virginia is being recorded? One. Me. I knew it was recorded. I get many, many confessions over the phone. Okay, back to the people. Yes, they're stupid. Okay, people are stupid. I had a young man who told me straight up, I'm going to college. I'm going to law school. I'm too smart. You'll never find out what happened. Okay. He was going to uh, Tidewater Community College. The law school of, I suppose. Tidewater Community College. He was a partner to the one who I told you the interview about just a little while ago where I would ask him what he needed the money for. He was his partner. And he was very smart. So he thought. He thought he was a very intelligent individual. I ended up arresting him five times out of his house. His mother hated me. She liked me the first time. She apologized. She didn't really like me much the second time. It got to the point where she really hated me after that. He's doing eight years upstate. He's very smart because he decided to tell me how smart he was and in telling me how smart he was, he let it slip that he doesn't sell stolen stuff to pawn shops. He sells it to flea markets because they do not have to report to the state. I know how to drive to a flea market just as good as anyone else and go look for stuff that I'm looking for. So he was trying to impress me with his ability to be smarter than I was, and he confessed. So people are inherently... Uh, stupid, especially criminals. Now, and don't get me wrong, there are some very intelligent criminals out there, and most of them work in really big office buildings and for suits. <laughs> <laughs> yep, she went to jail. Is she hurting? No. Uh, but there are some very intelligent street criminals out there as well that get other people to do their bidding and so forth and so on, and people are afraid to turn on them. But there are some very foolish people. Uh, just a couple other things. I do a thing usually with younger people, usually between the age of, uh, I try not to deal too much with juveniles, but between the age of 16 and, and 25, is once they've talked to me. Now, let's back up a little bit. You don't need a recording in court for a statement. As Professor Duane said, it's his word against my word if he was a defendant. Number one, and this is the way it works, 
And this is the way the real world works. In case you guys haven't been out there, that's outside the windows out there. The jury looks at a defendant sitting next to a, pros a uh, defense attorney. That's strike one because the jury is already looking at that as that being someone who did something that put them in that chair. Number two, they get a uniformed police officer up there. They get someone wearing a suit as a detective up there that is a professional witness. That's strike two. So now they have a professional witness against them. And then if they've confessed and that professional witness is going to sit there and read from his or her notes, the confession, that's strike three. Go get your orange jumpsuit. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. So they have all the strikes against them. And I know you're innocent until proven guilty, but it's a jury of your peers. And the perception is if you're sitting next to a defense attorney, you have to prove you're innocent. And that's, that's just the perception of a lot of the jury. No matter how many jury instructions they get, they still perceive that person is a hoodlum, is a criminal. And no matter how hard some defense attorneys try to put their clients in suits and have them sit up at the table, if the trial is a long trial, they fall back to their old ways and they start acting and speaking in a way that's not very good for their case. So saying that, you don't have to have a recording. My suppression hearing, a statement was trying to be suppressed because when I record a confession or an interview, because we don't do interrogations, the police, we do not do interrogations. That's a bad, mean, Nazi kind of word, okay? We do interviews. Okay. And you'd be amazed how much difference it makes when you use that one, one word, vice's interrogation. I'll take it off the tape and I'll have my secretary put it to paper. Immediately afterwards, I'll take that tape and I'll scan it over my magnet, throw it in my box so I can use it again. I do not keep the tape. It is not evidence. It's not required to be evidence. It is there. If it's there for the court, it's just extra. You don't have to have that but it's really good to have. The suppression hearing, he tried to suppress that after I testified. The defense counsel stood up and says, well, judge, I really don't have anything to say. And the judge, Judge Canada, said motion denied. And let's move on and go to court. So you don't have to have recordings. You don't have to have videotapes. The police videotapes, that's just extra. If you got that police officer sitting there testifying, you don't have to have that videotape. You got the guy that was right there to tell you what happened. But it's always nice to have those extra things. And what I do for these young people is I'll say, look, the person who you broke into their house are very upset. They're very angry because you sold their stuff to the pawn shop. Pawn shop stuff sold them. They don't get their stuff back. They're very angry. They want you to go to prison. Okay? They may be very angry. They want you to go to prison. They may want to. To lessen that, that's the start of what's commonly known as a lie because we are allowed to lie in interviews. To lessen that, you might want to make them happy. And the reason that's a lie is because when it is a felony in Commonwealth of Virginia, the victim has nothing to do with the prosecution or how long the people go to prison or any of that kind of stuff. We're prosecuting them, not the victim. But to lessen that, what I'd like you to do is write an apology letter to the person whose house you broke into. Just write it out. Well, how do I write it? In your own words, just write, you know, I'm sorry for what I did. Then say that, you know, when I broke into your house the other night, whatever. They write it out. They sign it. I sign it as a witness. I put the date and the time that it was written. I give it to the Commonwealth attorney. It's entered as evidence as a written confession in the person's own handwriting. 
I don't type it up again and have them sign it. In their handwriting, a written confession. Is that person going to get convicted? I have never seen them not get convicted on that, on an apology letter. So, in support of Professor Duane, everything he says is right. That's what I do. Now, to take away the support, I don't try and send innocent people to jail. That's it. That's all I have. Any questions or anything like that? Sir? Food prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Tuesday, May 12, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hi, Melody. Today we are pleased to have Rob West joining us on the program, and we're going to discuss more of the LIBAR rate fraud and... Why there is talk of a currency devaluation that is perhaps scheduled to take place this coming September. So we do have a lot to talk about, but before we connect to Rob, let us first take a look at the markets today. We have gold was up, was up nice today, up 9.50 at 11.94. We have silver up 23 cents today at 16.60. Platinum is up six at eleven thirty five and palladium is up four at seven hundred and eighty eight dollars. 
The Dow Jones, well, let's before we get to the Dow Jones, the USDX today is 0.46 to the downside, 94.55. Crude oil made it back up over 60, up 1.33 at 60.58. And the paper markets today, the Dow was down 21 points. Earlier in trade, it was down, I think, 180. Uh, But we'll talk about that here in just a bit. The S&P was down 4 at 21. Zero zero, and the Nasdaq is down thirteen fifty at forty nine eighty. And uh, my computer just isn't. Uh, maybe maybe it's going to be crashing now. Al, who knows? But uh, the Dow was down as much about one hundred eighty points in the first hour of trading this morning, and uh, traders are looking at the bonds. Uh, the bonds, uh, the world bonds have been selling off their government uh, bonds since last month. And, of course, this seems to be a little bit of a trend um, that is rattling investors' nerves. And we have weakness in bond prices, pushes up the borrowing costs, and this is a drag on the economy. And uh, this continued into early today. And it drove the yield on the 10-year note up to 2.35%. It did ease uh, by this afternoon, and of course, when it was up uh, 2.35%, that's when we had the 180 drop in the Dow, Uh, but this 2.35% is the highest level since late November. And uh, so we're looking at uh, the yield did come down to 2.26%, and um, it did trade as, uh, it traded below 2% as recently as April 28th. And, of course, it's not only our government bonds, uh, the yields that are rising, but it also German market, uh, uh, German government bonds also rose. So, uh, again, a little tweak in the markets there, and we'll have to see if this is a long-term trend or is this something temporary, but it certainly does uh, mix up and change the, the market's numbers around quite a bit. Markets overseas in Europe, Britain, and the, uh, they all fell about 1.6%. Uh, the DAX, Germany's uh, DAX, they sank about 1.7%. Uh, France's uh, CAC dropped about 1.1%. You also had Asian and Japan's uh, Nikkei, they closed uh, pretty much flat. And uh, the only one that really truly gained was, uh, of course, China's. They advanced about 1.6%. Percent in overnight trade. I already mentioned about what we're seeing in the oil prices, and uh, that's pretty much a wrap in the markets today. Um, we talked a lot this week, Al, about the TPP, the Senate Democrats. Yep. Um, they blocked efforts. Filibustered. Um, to begin a full-blown debate on his initiatives. Now, we told everybody to call these people and and complain about not putting it through. Well, maybe we should break down and say, go Democrats. I'm sure the Democrats didn't do it for the benefit of the American people. Well, maybe uh, they did. Maybe they did. Maybe they do want their jobs, but maybe they wanted something a little bit more than a plane ride in, uh, you know, Obama's uh, plane. Exactly. uh, They're going to have to... Obama, if you want to bribe him, you're going to have to throw yeah. at least a Domino's pizza and a six-pack of Coke. Boy, uh, these, these Democrats, you can't bribe them for just nothing, you know, a little plane ride. They're, they're you know, they've oh, been around the terrible? block. They, they know. Aren't we terrible? <laughs> Maybe.
maybe maybe we can be optimistic, but uh, highly un- unlikely. But anyway, they did defy the president. And what's interesting is I believe it was all but one Senate Democrat. Uh, that's pretty interesting. All but one Democrat defied the president well, today. Then, you know, they must, there must be political pressure on all of them, the, the Senate and the House, to hold Obama in line. And they're, and they're doing this. Now, the Democrats, just because they have, they can't easily support this, this Trans-Pacific Partnership without openly betraying the rank and you know, just ordinary Americans that, that work in, in businesses, industries, whatever, um, they have to pretty much, they have an obligation to do what's right for the people because in this case, the workers that typically vote Democrat, uh, they're the people that are going to be hurt badly by uh, uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I mean, it's certainly not going to do any harm to the, the, the corporate executives who work or work at or own multinational corporations. They're going to do just fine. So the Republicans want this. Republicans are going to work with the Obama to put this across. The Democrats are the one group that are likely to say, wait a second, this isn't good for our constituents. So there are a lot of things going on. Egg, turkey, meat prices, they're beginning to rise because of the bird flu spreads. Uh, we're going to talk about, uh, we'll bring, uh, tomorrow we have Greg Hunter joining us. So it's hard to get in a lot of these uh, reports uh, in the next two days, yet consumer borrowing, uh, that increased uh, in March. We can talk about here, we'll talk about that in just a little bit, and uh, some other numbers that came out Um we're waiting for Rob West to to join He's us on the today. Line. Oh, he is on the line. Well, that's what that's what Frank, the producer, claims. Can are you, you there? Know? Hello, Rob. Are you there? Hi, Melody. Hello, Al. How are y'all? Just fine. How are you doing, Rob? Sorry about that, Rob. I didn't know. I guess. Uh, uh, Frank failed to let me know. He just uh, he's partial to Al, you know. No, see, you get the same message I do. No, I didn't see. Huh? See what it comes down to. You actually have to look at the huh? little messages. Well, see, we'll debate that to... after the program. But uh, welcome to the no, program. No, we won't debate it. I know how it'll go. It won't be a debate. Yes. All right, let's get on. Let's get on with Rob West, and uh, so really some extraordinary research that Rob has done into the effects of the LIBOR fraud and manipulation of interest rates over the past 22 years. And I have a copy of an, a, a document that was sent to the office of the governor, uh, Hassan, Governor Hassan of New Hampshire, and it's regarding LIBOR fraud and financial and emotional crimes. And you've really got some extraordinary allegations here, Rob. If you're on this thing, if if what you've reported here is accurate, you've got something very powerful. And, I, I mean, this this is surprising to me to see, you know, it's one of those things where I don't know if this is right or wrong, but it sounds right. It's so important that I'd want to research it myself to verify but assuming that you got this nailed down, this is powerful, powerful information because it throws 
it raises issues of the credibility and the validity of any loan that's been negotiated in the last 22 years. Well, you're right, Al, and uh, I just invite people to join me in this research. Um, it's just that you know the outcome is so enormous when you really understand the magnitude of what. Oh, I get it. Reading your letter, I mean. I mean, this is, we can go through, let me just go through a little section of this right now. Uh, I'm, skim, I'm skimming down here. Okay, the, what this could mean, if you're, you have a legal theory that indicates that any loan at, for 22 years, well, there was, loans were being manipulated essentially by library established interest rates. And you're saying these when this happens, the loans become proven illegal financial instruments, meaning that the subject loan is void ab initio, which means it can't be collected. And you're saying this is true not only for mortgages, and that's where this started out as near as I know. If I understand correctly, you can correct me in a moment, but started out with mortgages, but also student loans, vehicle loans, credit card loans, LIBOR fraud has been going on for 22 years, and you have a legal theory right now that says all of these loans might be void. Am I well, understanding correctly? Essentially, uh, you're right on with that. And listen, uh, essentially, we last talked last month. At that time, there were six Department of Justice criminal convictions on the LIBOR fraud internationally, and now there's seven. And it's ongoing. And it's really simple to explain in a certain way, but unless you have a, a reasonable financial background, it would be difficult really to think that, you know, everybody says, hey, he lives in Colorado, he's probably smoking something, you know. So, no, but uh, what you're saying here is because there have been six or seven convictions by the government, by government prosecutors regarding LIBOR interest rate manipulations and the imposition of, am I correct, billions of dollars of fines in some of these, in some of these instances? Am I overstating? No. Now, keep in mind, the, proof is, the proof is this is a crime. LIBOR manipulation is a crime. This isn't just your opinion. You have evidence that this is a crime. So, and if it is a crime, then the legal consequences flow from that. Exactly. So the criminal convictions definitely point. DOJ, FBI have proven criminal wrong. It's been admitted in court documentation to the crimes. Not misdemeanors, but crimes. Now, felonies, felonies. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, so, people go to jail for over a year for felonies. And some of them are doing that right now because of that in, in different countries. Now, let's take, a, take this a step at a time. On the big side, the FBI, DOJ has the seven criminal convictions. They assess fines and penalties, and now they're in the billions of dollars. It doesn't say anything about restitution for damages, okay? <clears throat> now, you'll note, uh, I think in the letter I pointed out, um, um, 18 U.S.C., I think it's 270, that if 
you read through the criminal code, you'll see that once it's established that it is a crime, and then the different remedies down through 18 U.S.C. 3771, which is the Criminal Victims' Rights Act, and under that, maybe it's Section 470, I can't remember right now, but the point is... Um, the it's 470. FDIC, 470, yeah. yeah. FDIC, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, who has most of the mortgages in, in the country, uh, the National Credit Union Administration, and others, including the city of Baltimore, also used the Department of Justice FBI wins to sue for restitution for their damages because they were passing through financial instruments based on the LIBOR fraud. Yes. And they have huge substantial awards. The thing is, my point is everyone that has gotten financial instruments from lending institutions, from savings institutions, they are also affected, but no one's telling them. And so if the folks that wholesaled you the financial instrument are getting restitution, I would think that would mean you're on the retail side and you also are subject to restitution and set aside of any financial instrument. And under 3771 and, and uh, a few other sections of the criminal code, restitution, and the restitution includes going back to get back, if it's a loan, all the money you've paid in to acquire the loan, <clears throat> and perhaps damages in between because you may have been foreclosed on, or if you look at what the FBI's uh, uh, definition of uh, a uh, crime victim, crime victim. <clears throat> and I didn't make this up. This is a direct quote from their website, FBI, FBI defines crime victim means a person who has been directly or proximately harmed physically, emotionally, or financially as a result of the commission of a federal offense or an offense in the District of Columbia. So DOJ proved the federal offense. You and I and many others have been financially harmed, perhaps emotionally harmed, because of their criminal convictions. It makes us a crime victim. Now, it just so happened that since we've talked as well, I was able to find through um, one of our associates, uh, Salazar, in California, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, there's a case called Glube versus Deutsche Bank, and it was in the appeals court, which means appeals the lower court decided against the appeals court found in favor of Helen Galupe, and it clearly says, Galupe's cognizable injury occurred when she purchased the loan not upon payment of LIBOR-affected interest. Now, when you go out to finance something of large, uh, a large item or a service, you shop for an instrument to finance the purchase. And people just have not connected this. You've essentially shopped and obtained a lemon loan. And so the lemon right. rules in the criminal code says, here's your remedy. You see? So I don't care if you're late, behind, 
bought something you shouldn't, couldn't afford your reset, can't afford your student loans. Now, none of that matters because of what these guys did in the last 22 years. They messed up the system. We didn't. We're just finding out about it. And there's no reason for them to be rewarded for having committed or part conspired, participated in a crime under LIBOR rate manipulation. Exactly. <clears throat> so uh, if those who have not listened in on our uh, prior show, then uh, you know, I'd be happy to share my more current information as well. Um, but see, well, here's we'll, we'll do that. Why don't, why, why don't we take a break right now? We're due for some commercials. We'll, we'll, um, I'm Alfred Addis. We're here with Rob West and Melody Cedarstrom on financial survival. We will be back in a moment. Please stay tuned. obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee you've waited long enough call apothecary herbs now toll free 866-229-3663 that's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Are you concerned about prescription drug dependency to stay healthy? Are you worried that the cost and availability of your medications may put your health at risk? Perhaps it's time you consider a natural, safe, and effective way to deal with your health problems. If only you knew where to start. Start right here. Tune in to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson every Tuesday and Thursday evening, 7 p.m. on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, where your health care options just became endless. Hey. 
folks, I'm Alfred Adisk here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. We are talking to Rob West, who is the Senior Financial Strategist and Co-Founder of RME Advisors and Financial Preservation Network, uh, two different limited, limited liability corporations. And he has, on his own, perhaps in conjunction with some other people, discovered some legal implications that right now might be useful. I mean, it is, if the implications are correct, if the analysis is correct, it may be that almost any loan that's been taken out in the last 22 years, or at least while labor manipulation was taking place over most of that time, um, those loans might be void, it might be that you're entitled to recover whatever you paid into the loans. If we are, if this theory were correct, it means that however much you paid on your mortgage, let's say you had a mortgage for the past 10 years, and you're paying $1,500 a month on the mortgage, say 2000 just to keep it simple, 24000 a year, quarter million you've paid in, 240000 over the last 10 years, it appears that it might be possible to recover that $240,000. Am I understanding correctly, Rob? Is that a, is that a reasonable possibility, or is it, am, I, am I just misunderstanding? That's exactly what is reflected in the criminal code. So what I'm doing, and you're reading now, I'm preparing different letters for different governors and attorney generals, uh, but to um, remind them of the fact that they have received criminal complaints. And under 18 U.S.C. 4, they need to investigate. And the only thing I want these people to do is to investigate. And they'll find what I found, and I'll offer my research to them, and they'll find more. It's just that, you know, the research, I believe, is you can't refute it, but it's making people angry because... Well, they're just not ready to accept the enormity of the conclusions. I don't and think they can. I mean, no. what you, what you, if this is correct, I mean, realistically, you've got an opportunity to collapse the whole financial system. Well, I don't think it's going to need my help, actually. But uh... well, I get that. But <laughs> nevertheless, I, I, that's that's true. But there are people who are hoping to stretch it out. You know, until next September, and you might be able to do it next week if under the right circumstances. I'm exaggerating. I know that you can't do it in the next week. I know it would take time. But nevertheless, this is an enormously important understanding and hypothesis for the moment. It turns out to be true. This is just devastating. You'd mentioned that the government has imposed fines in terms of billions of dollars on some of the six or seven defendants uh, six or seven lawsuits they filed, but there hasn't been any restitution. Government's finding these people and say, "Give money to us, the government, and forget all those peons. Let the peons out there in uh, in TV land let them figure it out for themselves. They don't need anything." Um, you're saying that it's possible for people to initiate their own lawsuit. Well, at least well, you're implying that. I haven't heard you say it. But you're yeah. implying that they could get this bouncing on their own and perhaps collect well, 
Yeah, just a point of clarification from the point of view of the Department of Justice and the FBI, when they have had those fines, uh, the criminal fines from the convictions, I don't believe that the government is really in line to get any restitution. However, that's why yeah. Fred Fanning and FDIC did move on that to get restitution. But they're not telling anybody else because the individual consumer needs to know about this and to move through and get restitution. And I'm have, the yeah. have, Do you have access to whatever legal papers were filed by Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac? Because if they have recovered restitution, right, then, and they're just keeping it for themselves, if it's possible to access their paperwork, and I assume you or other people you're associated with have, have done so or trying to do so, because they just they should just spell it out and say, here's how you go about getting these guys to give you some money back. Right. Well, you know, of course, those would be on a, on a wholesale basis as institutional complaints and so forth. And those court records, we're researching them now. Um, my friend, the, the co-founder of the financial fraud company, Carlos Cato, has helped me develop this line of thinking. And he, he came up with it before I did. I just, Sherry uh, Pierce and I are my partner. We do things in this line of work for the last five or six years. And and I really didn't believe it either. So I started getting into what Carlos was sharing with me. And then the more I found out and the more I put into it, then I started writing a book because I wanted people to read it because I was telling the same story six or eight times a day. And so I'd rather people get caught up on the reading and then we'll talk about how it might apply to them. <laughs> so, but yeah, those, you know, the restitution is very interesting. Um, FDIC, for instance, their main complaint was because they had to pay out for failed banks because of their activities were directly in, uh, impacted by the LIBOR uh, interest rate on, on large packages of money. And uh, now the uh, city of Baltimore, they were using derivatives to offset their operations and bringing to market uh, municipal bonds and so that they could pay a shorter term or a smaller interest rate on variable rates knowing that they have a derivative to back up in case the renewal rate would go against them. And so those derivatives, a lot of the derivatives is the whole problem. And when majority of the major loans you see, we've traced them back into the individual securitization pools. And there's been violations of many pooling and servicing agreements. <clears throat> but the whole thing we found out is if we find loans that hit securitization pools, because I can go into the SEC website with the loan number, and I can see exactly what tranche that that loan is in and what the disposition of it, because you know how to access it. It's public information in a sense, some of the stuff I have to buy a service for. But uh, what we do is explain and share with people, and usually the people are coming to give us, uh, you know, look to us for help, are the ones that's already in trouble, and um, so you mean they're already in a they're already facing foreclosure. Rather, they're yeah. not preempting; they're reacting to government or the banks or somebody's coming after them. They're coming to you for to see if you can provide a defense. 
Yeah, and you know, it's just human nature that you know, once you're in a real spot, then you really look for help. But this is open for everybody. You know, I mean, you don't have to be in trouble to to do some homework. And I, I really am encouraging people. I got a notice from Carlos Cato uh, last month that the major lenders petition Congress to allow them to destroy closing records, which we need to do a good analysis. And by the end of June, um, there's going to be some companies in business to shred a lot of documents because we continue to find evidence of a multitude of wrongdoings in, in addition to the LIBOR uh, problem. So if anyone out there in the listening world has some information that, that you know, we're looking for, the documentation, the copies of the executed documents at the closing table, because the Congress gave the major lenders the okie-dokie to destroy those papers after June 30th. So they know what they're doing, and frankly... Can you get around that? If these closing documents are permanently destroyed, can you still go after these people for restitution? Well, there is a way, but it would be a little more complicated through freedom of information mm -hmm. and so forth, but it would just be a lot simpler You've made a financial transaction. Just get your paperwork in order right now and hustle to do it before the end of June so that you have a well, wouldn't Not he, the first wouldn't, of June, the end of June. You have six weeks, seven weeks perhaps to get this done. Wouldn't right. people normally have their closing documents? Well, you know, a lot of them have closing documents that are copies of what they signed, but they don't have the executed copies of what they signed, which means both the borrower and the lender's signature was on on the documents. We've come what to happens that. what happens if you file paperwork that takes advantage of this argument and you file it now, can they still destroy the closing documents if you initiate some sort of legal action before the end of June? Well, that would be Mr. Cato's call with his company um, in the financial fraud investigation because they like to review the case situation before they initiate the complaint. And this is real simple, okay? Keep in mind that individual people cannot file a criminal lawsuit. You know, it's just yeah. the jurisdictions can. But we can file a complaint. And so under 18 U.S.C. 4, these complaints that are uh, sent certified mail to the AGs and the governors and the sheriffs and whoever needs to be a party of your of your case, <clears throat> we're just bringing to their attention the probability of a crime, and they need to move it to investigation. Once it's through investigation, it's kind of like you walked into a sheriff's office and you got a stab wound with a knife sticking out your back. Was there a crime committed? Well, probably pretty much. Well, we better investigate this. Okay. Once the investigation is done, then there's two outcomes. Should we get the grand jury or there's no crime? Well, if we decide there is a crime, then the grand jury is convened and witnesses are called, and then that's how the crime starts in, in, in the court system. But you and I can't file a criminal uh, law. But what a, do, you, do, you, do, you know, do you know if RICO would apply under these circumstances? Well, we've talked about that, and I suspect that there's just a lot of evidence to bring that into the picture, and I think Mr. Cato and his think tank group are uh, developing strategies to review that.
but you don't have much time to do it. My point is, I've looked into RICO in the past. It isn't something I'm, I'm certainly not an expert. I actually did prepare, uh, drafted a complaint, a RICO complaint at one point, but I didn't serve it. Got tangled up with other things, and then just I, I filed it into federal court, and that's as far as it went. But the point is that RICO allows individuals to file civil suits based on crimes committed by the defendant. And it means I can function as a private attorney general under the RICO laws, and that's not a metaphor. The government said when they created the RICO laws, they wanted the people to be able to function as private attorneys general to go out there and file these suits to go after organized crime. And that's certainly what you've got here. And I'm trying to remember, there's 15, 20 different possible kinds of suits that can be filed under federal law, and there's more under state law, and I'm just thinking, I'll bet this thing fits on RICO. Oh. Well, you know, that I stick to what I can do best, and that's a little above my pay grade. However, we we have engaged a law professor here at Denver University to help me work through some research, and uh, Michael is uh, just excellent at this to defend property rights for people. And... Uh, but yeah, it's just—it's just so huge. Um, when I found that 500 to 800 trillion in derivatives have been affected by this, that's an extraordinary number. It is. Yeah. I mean, the 500 to 800 trillion dollars, and there are some people who think there's two quadrillion dollars. Uh, everybody agrees there's. Well, I won't say everybody, but there's much agreement that there's at least one quadrillion dollars worth of derivatives out there. Some people think there's two quadrillion dollars, of which 800 trillion is only, I don't know, 25, 30 percent, something like that. Not even 30 percent. Uh, probably in the neighborhood of 25, something like that. So these are these numbers are conceivable, but they are almost unimaginable. On the one hand, say, wow, that sounds crazy. On the other hand, it does seem to be happening. Well, with my partner Sherry and some of our colleagues, I, I can get off onto a tangent of building a clock, I'm told. But you know, this, this is part of a major linchpin of a world global financial system. And the LIBOR has affected uh, about every country in the development of their financial products. So, uh, you know, it's just amazing, Rob. It's law 101. You know, if you have fraud in a contract, that contract is void. That's right. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. Yep. And yet, and I have many clients who are realtors, and they tell me that they believe that the thing that we, we talked about bringing down the system, that the one thing that will bring down the system is the real estate market. Now, you know, you might not say it was uh, tied exactly to the LIBOR that the, the, what they're referencing, the banks and their ties but it's all interconnected. And uh, we wouldn't have the problems if they didn't lie about the LIBOR rates and to where all these are all void and and uh, where there's so much fraud and corruption. So uh, any little tweak in any little segment of this uh, massive amount of fraud and the, you know, what was created through the real estate, uh, which affects everyone, um, it, it, it's just... A, it, it's mind-boggling to to the degree. 
No, it's been, I agree with you. It is mind-boggling, and that's not just a term. Um, it really is, it is mind-boggling, because what this implies is that virtually every loan that's been negotiated mm-hmm. in the last 20 years or more can be rendered void. And what's interesting is you have, you know, my term for Tim Geithner, little Timmy Geithner, comes out, and, yeah, we were aware they admit that they were aware and you would think that that would they would be complicit in that those fraud charges and yet of course he was guilty for not uh, paying his taxes either and he didn't go to jail for that either but that's another story so it, it it's amazing that is this is just something that's been pushed um brushed under the rug so far so far but if Congress is allowing people to invalidate, allowing them to destroy evidence after the after June 30th or whatever, it means somebody up there, they know what's going on, and they, they are trying to get away from this. They're trying to get out from under it as best they can. Let's take a break for some our last commercial break here. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival, and our guest is Rob West, financial advisor. We will be back in a moment. Please stay tuned. a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in an untested vaccine hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now.
Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Addis, Gear on Financial Survival with Melody Cedarstrom and our guest, Rob West. What is, well, what's next, Melody? Well, I want to let the listeners know we have some Royal Canadian Mints Call of the Wild series. We have the one-ounce gold growling cougar. Uh, we had some requests uh, to bring in this coin, and we did. And uh, so it is uh, uh, a very nice coin from Canada, something a little different than the Canadian maple leaf. She, still, she is still on the one side of the coin, but on the other side you do have that. That's Cougar, and it's a very nice coin. We have some in, and uh, from what I've been told, our prices are still the lowest. So give us a call. What are you laughing at, Al? I don't know. They've, <laughs> I know. they've got a coin with with Queen Elizabeth on it or whoever's over there. I don't know. And she is a... She yeah, is a I was trying to be one. nice. Uh-huh. And they call they are, it... We have many Canadians no. listening. This is interesting. This there's, but we won't get into that right now. We have many Canadians listening. So, uh, uh, but this is uh, actually it's the Majesty Queen Elizabeth II is is on the obverse side of the coin, and um, give us a call at one eight hundred three seven five four one eight eight. That's one eight hundred three seven five four one. Eight eight. This is a one ounce gold coin. Beautiful. It is really beautiful coin, and it's for twelve hundred and sixty dollars. Give us a call. Make sure you visit our website at dgscoins.com. Dgscoins.com. Make sure you sign up for our weekly newsletter, and you can listen to this program live by going to the radio page, and we also archive all the programs. You know, Rob, I'm going to change the the pace here a little bit, or the page, and um, we'd wanted to talk a little bit about currency devaluation. Uh, There's many predictions, uh, opinions uh, that come September, we're going to see an unwinding of our currency, of the markets, and uh, I think we bear, we're getting close we usually come to the conclusion here no one knows the the time or the month that it's going to happen but every day we get closer and uh it's a little there's a lot of signs though that are indicating to September uh any thoughts well indeed and I'm glad you brought that up and it was a, a great uh, uh reminder about your your um, discounting gold and silver because um what we're doing in the LIBOR thing is an issue, and but I think much more of a concern that will probably have a much quicker outcome, as you say. A lot of folks have heard things about uh, China and their rapid growth, and uh, those folks, uh, you know, just some a lot of people just say it's really scary, you know, and they just you become scared of things when you really don't have knowledge of what's going on, and and uh, then you can't prepare for it. But <clears throat> I have been reading a lot, and I was on the International Monetary Fund website uh, over the weekend, and I've come across some research, and it was confirmed by a few other analysts that uh, our, the United States dollar is the dominant world reserve currency. It's not the only one. And a world reserve currency status, a lot of folks don't understand, but short answer is it's used to settle international trade matters for the most part. But there's four major uh, 
country's currency that is used, and the United States is the most dominant, and the euro is the second. But because uh, you know the yen's in there for a little bit, and so is the British pound. But what's been happening is China is just really, really moving up, and so the yuan uh, is getting more and more notice, and it's quite possible it'll be added to the basket of currencies. And what I mean by basket, really the world reserve currency is based on um, what the IMF calls special drawing rights, and they're called SDRs. And the SDR is really the reserve currency made up of these four Actually, there's seven, uh, three other minor countries that are in there, including Australia. But <clears throat> what's going to happen, I believe, is China cannot be neglected any longer, and they're going to add the yuan in there. Now, the problem is, I believe, all governments and large companies that need to settle international trades and that, long story short, the huge market share that the U.S. dollar has in that basket will likely diminish maybe by 50% to make room for the one in that SDR basket. Should that happen, everything in Walmart will be doubled in price and every place else. So gold and silver, by the way, silver in particular was one uh, situation occurred in the past, I think 33 years ago. Uh, silver was a huge benefactor by climbing more than 800%. I believe gold climbed more than that in buying power. And so a lot of people out there, I don't care what investment you have, if it's in U.S. dollars, you know, stocks, real estate, money, you know, whatever. When this switch happens, it'll be a matter of will exchange away from their dollars into uh, the one. And when that happens, that's what's going to take the dollar in, probably in half, in my estimation. So if you're wishing and hoping for a decent retirement and you have some assets, it'd be a real good idea to get an early call to talk about this. Because that's for, you know, what, 6,000 years, gold and silver has always been a recognized, you know, currency exchange mechanism, and if you have the bullion in hand, if you have the gold and silver, it doesn't matter if you exchange it back for dollars or one, but or any basket of the SDRs, because if, if the whole currency platform uh, gets totally trashed, the IMF has been put in place to take away all the currencies and just use the SDRs. But that's unlikely to happen, really. But this huge shift, because there's been dollar printing out, I think I heard since 2008, there's been a 400% increase in U.S. dollar supply, you know? And and most international transactions, the dollar is involved with the settlement, and now it's going to be crowded out. And so... In economics 101, you know, the supply and demand, nobody wants the dollars, then it's just going to ruin the buying power, except for a number of particular investments that could super beneficially be advanced because if you're in the right sector, if you're in the wrong one, and it's really bad to say this, but 75% of the people are going day to day and they really don't have any assets in that, but... If they have the right information and where to put whatever small amount 
of investment or savings they might have, I don't know. You could probably get three, four, five, six hundred percent growth in that purchasing power if you're in the right in in the right spot relative to the SDRs. It doesn't matter. But, you know, and you you made a good connection on dots. I mean, for from day one, as long as you have a fiat currency, the world is flush in fiat currencies, and everybody manipulates their currencies. It's only natural. The next step is you're somewhere along the line, you're going to have to have something to stabilize those currencies. And with China being as big as they are, I never thought that they would have the main reserve currency, but they would be involved, slapping them into the basket of currencies. But the cannot. But the, the dot that's important is what the price of the products will do in Walmart. You, I yeah. mean, you're right. I mean, they'll double in a, in a blink of an eye. Exactly. And that exactly. means everyone's standard of living is going to be cut in half. And you know what's interesting today is uh, where last night I went to the store. And normally at the, at the store, if you, your purchase was like $30, you didn't have to actually sign it. They would just give you the receipt. And this purchase was more than, it was like 50-some dollars. And I said, well, don't I have to sign for it? Oh, they raised it to $65. So I said, oh, the prices are, they're anticipating the prices to increase, you know, so people don't have to, the people will be buying the same thing, but instead of costing, you know, 45 and $50, it's going to cost them 65 I thought that was interesting. Indeed. And incidentally, you asked, talked about September. <clears throat> when I was looking at the IMF calendar, beginning in May is the analysis of this basket. And in my opinion, what it means is all the currencies relative to the country's productivity, and which the Chinese have just ballooned super in the last five years, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think at all that they would not be invited to be in that basket of currencies. <clears throat> and I'm not sure if they'd be the dominant one or not, but everybody can see where the momentum's going relative to our economy and theirs. And, you know, I, you could see $5,000 gold in a heartbeat. And this stuff would not take but hours to get put into place. It's all electronic switching for the banks and the major settlement houses. <clears throat> so, uh, and you know what, China, China, John, China. China has the leverage to do it, too. I mean, you look at all the banks that they're trying to create, the, you know, their international banks, their BRICS banks, and their relationship with Russia. And uh, the funniest thing I saw today was Kerry going over to Russia to talk to Putin about Syria. You know, forget about what's going on. <laughs> you know, forget about the sanctions that we have on you. Let's talk about Syria. I mean, the world is bizarre. And uh, certainly China does have a lot of clout. Well, do you think China really wants to get into that same basket? Absolutely. You know, it's been a strange situation. The dollar has, it's because it's caught in the U.S. dollar index, it's caught in that basket, and it's weighed against the other six currencies. When they inflate those currencies, the dollar necessarily goes into deflation, which it may not want to do. And my question is, what I'm wondering about, will the same problem turn up for China? 
where they can be pushed into deflation, whether now if they had a basket of seven currencies, if the other seven currency or the other, I guess the other seven currencies, including the United States dollar, if they all went into inflation at the same time, maybe we've got a teeter-totter here. Got China on one end, the other six, seven on the other end. If they all go into inflation, China goes into deflation. I, I don't know if I'm making myself clear, but is it absolutely certain that China wants in? You know, it's one of those things, beware what you wish for or pray for. Maybe they're better off sticking with the bricks. Well, I would suggest that the Chinese planning as long in advance as they do, all of the yeah. gold and silver they've been buying up, that I think their one will be very strong and uh, they would love to be part of the settlement of international trades. Yeah. So uh, I, I just think that's a huge indicator. And right now, I believe it's a much larger find than in what to do immediately about investigating affairs, even more so than looking at the LIBOR situation. Tell us again when you think this might, when you think it might happen that China will be brought into this basket of currencies and the U.S. dollar might be devalued by 50% almost overnight. According to their website, they have already initiated in May this analysis and they call for their timeline to be October the 11th. So <clears throat> I've also heard there's some magic around October the 20th, but Hey kids, you know we got four months here, and you know don't sit on the fence. If you have some assets, you want to make sure that's going to be productive in the next five years for you. And this is not rocket science for those who follow what's going on in these economies and the currencies. You know, it's, it's, it's to me, it's a no-brainer. It's but a fundamental. There's a lot of people on that fence with the Dow at eighteen thousand, and they're getting dividends. They're there on the fence waiting. Yeah, well, it's going to be barbed wire by the time they wait too long. You're absolutely mm -hmm. correct. Yeah. Uh, Rob, why don't you uh, give us a little contact information, Rob? Unless you want to, we've still got uh, we've got about ninety seconds till we till we have to close down. Is there a closing remark you'd like to bring to people's attention? Well, the biggest thing is to get. Throw away the idea of procrastinating. You know, I mean, we don't have an option here anymore. And when you start counting down the currency valuation situation, I just think that is just, you know, I'm about 99%. No question that's going to happen. The LIBOR stuff, if, help, if people get their affairs together and give a little bit more connection to get an understanding about what's going on, that's great. But uh, I think the more important thing is if you, if you have liquid assets or retirement-oriented assets, particularly if you're over 55 years old, you really need to look at gold and silver because you just do. And uh, my contact information is Rob, R-O-B, at rmeadvisors.com. The RME is for Rocky Mountain Educational Advisors. So Rob at rmeadvisors.com. 
text or be reached at 303-472-0531. That comes direct to me uh, on my cell phone. But uh, for email, and we get back as quickly as we can. And uh, I don't want to overemphasize. I love people. you got a really smart audience, Melody, that listens to you now. And, you know, guys, you got to look into this stuff. And I just, you can look into every research that I do. And you can email me, and I'll show you the links that I go to. And But you don't have a lot of time. You just don't. Well, we don't have any. Hey, they're gold from, Rob. I'm sorry? Who should they buy their gold from? Well, if you to trust anybody, call Melody. All right, she—I've known her for years, and I got to know her through Bob Chapman. And uh, it, particularly if there's a super rush on things, I've found so many things out of the line in pricing with other dealers over the years and that. But uh, no question, give Melody a call at Discount Gold and Silver, and uh, and she'll talk with you and help you develop uh, a decent strategy for your income level and your net worth and uh, and your preservation level, but uh, and she's always there to exchange back as well. So, absolutely, thank you, Rob. Okay, hope for, to, hope to have you on again time. soon. We're out of time. We've got to thank all of you for listening. Melody and I will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, Frank, the producer, and Rob West. Bye-bye. Bye all day to pay the bills I have to pay. Pain is fast. Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me. That's too fast. In my dreams, I have a plan. If I got me a wealthy man, I wouldn't have to work at all. I'd fool around and have a that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for one 40 
$149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
And remember, folks, we are a national satellite radio program, and I guess we're international if you consider the Internet, because we are simulcast at the same time on the Internet, and it goes to podcasts. We, Speaking of podcasts, our program archives, which are podcasts, can be found at ProfCR.com and Branch.Podomatic.com. Both are smartphone-friendly. In fact, at Branch.Podomatic.com, they have a Apple and an Android app, you know, so you can, uh, no matter what kind of cell phone you got, you can put the app in, and it makes it easier to listen to programs. But mind you, you don't have to download anything at any place. You can just go to either place and hit a button that says play, and the programs will just stream, stream to you live. Or um, if you go to the uh, branch or the main radio archives at branch.podomatic.com, which, by the way, there is a link as soon as you get to the page, you'll see a picture that has an angel blowing a horn, and it's over the world, and there's a asteroid hitting the Earth, and it says End Time Radio Archives. If you just click on that link, it'll take you to that branch site, and then there you there's links to download it, all kinds of things. Anyway, and a description of the program. And I challenge you to please share this radio program with two or three other people because the more people that listen, the more people get warned. And also, it blesses the Mission Church because, you know, it takes a, a couple of things. You know, the percent of people that, that we're not getting rich and we're not trying to, but if you consider it's not like everybody says, oh, okay, well, yeah, I'm going to donate. Most people consider radio free, and they don't they don't donate to it, and so on and so forth. So it takes a lot more listeners to get out of that to find a few that the Father works on their heart, and they make donations to support the Wichita Mission Church and to support airtime because supporting airtime is supporting the Wichita Mission Church because that's what supports it anyway. Enough about support. Let's get a prayer, and let's bring on tonight's guest. Dear Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name I pray. Father, I pray the radio tonight goes according to your will and not mine. And not our guest will, Father, but please, your will. And please, give everyone out there ears and wish to hear the truth. So please, Father Yahweh, please bless this program tonight in your son's mighty name, Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen and amen. The day of the Lord is at hand. Uh, well, tonight's guest, that's the name of his one of his books. He also has another book, uh, two new books, one volume one and volume, volume one called uh, Search the Scriptures, Out of the Darkness, and volume two, You Shall Know the Truth. Um, I haven't had a chance to read them. He just sent them to me. But um, if it's anything like The Day of the Lord is at Hand, they're fantastic books. His name is Benjamin Baruch. Benjamin is a chartered financial analyst and a certified public accountant. Benjamin was a managing institutional investment, doing institutional investment portfolios in the 1990s when he began praying and asking the Lord to show him the end of the matter regarding the stock market. After a year of prayer, the uh, Lord answered him, but rather than revealing the future of the stock market, the Lord showed him literally judgment, which is coming upon America. Kind of a surprise, like our last guest, he started off to look at some burial mounds and he found giants. What can you say about that? Anyway, Benjamin released his first book, Today the Lord is at Hand, in 1998. It's now in its seventh edition. Um, anyway, so get the book, and let's just bring him on. We've talked to him and talked about him enough. Let's just bring him on. Are you there with me, Benjamin? Hey, Pastor Dan. How are you? 
Well, I'm glad to have you on, and, and I was just thinking about it. You know, your programs are, for the folks, your programs that you did on this radio program are still back in radio archives, and people still listen to them, even after, I don't know, you. it's been a while, but uh, they still listen to those other radio programs. Anyway, so how are you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing great, brother. I'm excited to see what God has next in store for his people, and it's an exciting time to be alive. Yes, amen. And, you know, I, I think it's exciting. Um, you you fascinate me as well as my previous guest. I was talking to him. Uh, he did a book called The Nephilim Chronicles, and he wrote two books, and he did 15 years' worth of field research, you know, and discovering on burial mounds in Ohio. But he, he like you, he didn't start off to, to find – he didn't start off to find – giants, you know what I mean? He started off to research on some burial mounds. He didn't know it was going to lead to giants. You prayed about the stock market, and you found the uh, about judgment. So that's fascinating to me. <laughs> it, is, it is kind of fun. Well, it, that's kind of the way the Lord works, though, isn't it? You know, we start out looking for one thing, and God leads us to another. Hallelujah. Yeah. Yeah, hallelujah, amen. You know, I never, when I first come out of the world and I got saved and and I went to a, uh, was invited to a prophets and pastors and apostles conference, you know, and I basically just went to help out. And then I had uh, two ministers, you know, pour oil on me and, and you know, uh, anoint me with a certain calling, which I don't need to go into that. But point being is, and then, you know, I thought, well, I'm going to go out and do all these things for the Father. I ended up doing something completely different. But I've been so greatly blessed of what he has me do that uh, I have no complaints at all. Just different direction, though. Amen. Well, thank you for inviting me back. I thought perhaps you had read the new book, Out of the Darkness, and you wanted me on to, to talk about the book. But I got from your the introduction, you haven't had a chance yet to, to no, break the cover I, I and really, read the pages. Yeah. I really haven't, um, brother. The last couple of weeks, so much has come in since you got. It. I can't wait to do it. I'm going to try and read it over this weekend, over the Sabbath, uh, and uh, then we'll. Cut, I'll bring you back on and talk about it. But really, um, this thing that you sent me um, with a, a few notes on it, I'd kind of like to talk to, about maybe this coming, uh, this uh, thing, the coming of the Black Prince. Uh, maybe we can talk about that and a few of those things, and then uh, okay. I'll have you on in a couple of weeks, and we'll do uh, we'll do these books. Well, sure, absolutely. Yeah, the Black Prince, which is really another name for the Antichrist. The coming of the Black Prince is really just yeah. the coming of the the Antichrist, and and I guess the. I never really understood that he he himself, he calls himself the Black Prince. I guess it's kind of like a secret name that he uses, but his little secret is out. And um, I kind of uh, I stumbled onto the information about the Black Prince in the beginning of 2014. I had been fasting and praying for the first two months on kind of a recurring basis, fasting every for like three days and then having a meal and then fasting for three more days and you right. know, really going on like that for about two months. And the Lord began speaking a very 
profound things to me. He started out by talking to me about the life of Job and the prophetic significance of the life of Job and what's hidden within the scriptures in the book of Job. And You know, I had studied, um, I went to graduate school at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Israel in 2013, and so I learned to read and write in Hebrew, and I'm certainly no Hebrew scholar by any means, but I, I know my alphabet and I, I know the language well enough to work my way through the Hebrew text, and so I began to study the book of Job, and I started looking in the Hebrew. And there are things in the Hebrew that just really aren't, that they're not readily apparent from the English. But they, the Lord began to speak and bring forth a deeper meaning, the prophetic significance of Job. And, and Job is the first chapter of volume two. And, and uh, I, I won't steal the thunder because the message of Job is about three hours long. But Job is on uh, YouTube. So if you guys want to just hear the message of Job, just type in Benjamin Baruch and, and the name Job, and you'll probably find the teaching. But in any event, um, after Job, the Lord said to me, I want to speak to you about that woman Jezebel. And, of course, Jezebel is that prophetess who came deceiving the saints of God, and the Lord pointed her out in the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. And he referred to her in the book as that woman Jezebel. And so an entire message on unveiling, unmasking the false prophets came forth. And that's also on the YouTube channels if you guys want to go hear the Jezebel message. It's pretty amazing as well. And it's also in volume two. <laughs> and then after the Jezebel study, which really on kind of unveils the, the, some of the prophecies in the book of Ezekiel, which I had never understood, Dan. The prophecy about the false prophets, how they tied the pillows on the hands of the people, the pillowcases in Ezekiel chapter 13. I could never understand that chapter until the Lord began speaking about it. And then I went and studied it in the Hebrew, and, and it's amazing. But then after the message and the revelation of that woman Jezebel, then the Lord told me, I want you to go and study the meaning of the black horse of the book of Revelation. And so I started studying everything I could get my hands on regarding that black horse. And of course, the word black, it appears in the scripture 18 times. And it represents the absence of light, and that which is covered in darkness as in a black night that is soiled or stained. It represents a time that is dismal for all. It's a time that's harmful and evil, a time when wicked ones will rule, and when the, where the ones who come with a black heart will be in power. The rule of the dark ones, I call it. Black represents censure and disgrace, disaster and misfortune, and it foretells the coming of the dark ones. These are the very, the ones whose garments are black as the garments of the black prince, for these are his servants. And their reign comes in secret at first. They set up their world government through covert means, as the kingdom of darkness was brought to power through what they call black op programs, which the governments in the West have been 
doing in the shadows. It's actually been under the direction of the beast, and yet it's all been hidden in the darkness. So this word for black is kadar, and it means to mourn in sackcloth, to have soiled garments that are blackish and darkened. So as I began studying this black horse and looking at, you know, the significance, and the black horse follows the red horse. The very first judgment, the breaking of the first seal in the book of Revelation, we see four horses come forth. And the first seal, of course, is the white horse. And he's wearing white as if he were a good guy. And he has a crown. And that crown, it represents he's seen by the world as a legitimate ruler. This is an empire and a world power that the nations all looked up to because he was a force for good. He was fighting for peace and democracy. And thus the nations of the world considered him the legitimate ruler of the world in the time of the end. But yet he had a bow and he goes forth to conquer and conquering. And he may have been a force for good in prior years, but at the time of the end when the book of Revelation is unveiling, he comes forth under the dominion of the beast. And what he really is doing with all of the global wars that he's been starting, allegedly to promote peace and democracy, of course, but he's actually been rolling out the New World Order, which he's the champion of, having founded the One World Government model of the United Nations, which is modeled after the White Horse's own central government, a union of independent states that have all joined together. Of course, the rider on the white horse is easy to identify because he lives in a white house. And he tells the world that he's a force for good. But nothing could be further from the truth in the time at the end. Because his institutions of power, his media, and all of his global corporations have come under the dominion of the black prince. And so he's being manipulated by the men behind the curtain. And he's actually doing the bidding of the evil ones. But what will follow will be the Red Horse, which, of course, is World War. And that's the War of Ezekiel 38. That, and, of course, the Reds, red is the color of war. And we, we also know the Reds are the communists and the Arabs, the terrorist alliance. And, and they will bring the war. And they will bring the end of the rule of the White Horse. The White Horse, the eagle's wings will be plucked. And then the lion, the, the beast, the destroyer of the Gentiles. The lion has emerged from the, from the grass and from his hiding place, and the destroyer of the Gentiles is on its way, it says in the prophecies. So the lion will be lifted up above the earth, and the Antichrist kingdom will come to power immediately following the judgments of the red and then the black horse. And the Lord told me they will come together as a red and black judgment. The black horse will follow immediately after the war. And of course the black horse is a global collapse, a total system collapse of the whole earth, because if the great daughter of Babylon is destroyed in a world war in which over a billion people are killed in a global nuclear exchange, then the world economy itself will also lay in ruins. And if the United States is destroyed, which is one of the major food-producing countries, the world's populations face starvation as well. So the time of the Black Horse will be a time of incredible hardship for the Earth. And as I was studying all of this, Dan, 
a good yeah. friend of mine contacted me, and this was in the very first part of 2014. Right. This friend of mine is a pretty connected guy. He knows a lot of people in the intelligence business. And he started to brief me that the Russian newspapers were forecasting some incident that was going to occur. They were predicting an incident would occur around the Black Sea and that that incident would become the trigger for World War III. And this was being taken seriously enough that the major Russian newspapers were publishing this report, and it was based on Russian astrologers. But nothing gets in the major media in Russia unless the government sanctions it. And we don't realize this in the West, but the Russian Communist Party, which is still in power behind the scenes, through all of the men that have kind of slipped in right. from the KGB. They've now become the, the oligarchs of uh, semi-free Russia. But the same power structure is still calling all the shots. These men are steeped in deep occultism, and they are steeped in astrology. The KGB even has an entire division devoted to astrology. They have office buildings full of mathematicians running supercomputers tracking the stars, even as the Nazis were captured by the idea of astrology. So the reports had come out that there was something in the stars foretelling a war that really? would start some uh, related to some incident on the Black Sea. Well, I told my friend, I said, listen, I don't follow astrology. That's just a big satanic counterfeit. Right. But the Bible tells us that God made signs in the stars yeah, for his people. Sure. And I studied the stars from a biblical perspective. And, it, Dan, it's really as simple as looking at this each star that is part of each constellation and studying the name of each star and going back and deciphering what the meaning of the name of each star is. And the names of all the stars within each constellation will pretty much tell you the meaning of the constellation. It's right, not something right. hidden. It's in Absolutely. plain view. You know, God Absolutely. put the signs up for us to see. They're not hidden like the things of the occult, but they're in plain sight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just a couple small things before we go to break. Um, I know what you mean about astrology. I had somebody on here that explained that to us, a woman did in great detail. That's what she was. And it became really amazing, uh, everything she was saying, because she did just that. She went to the name and said, well, okay, this is what it means, and explained it. Really fascinating. On the Russians. I do, you know, I spend at least um, three or four hours at, at at the least in the news practically every day, except for the Sabbath or when I'm at the Mission Church. And when I'm at the Mission Church, I still have it on. So I monitor certain things. I have filters, and so I monitor the Russians, and they are are incredibly getting ready for war with all their overflights and testing our boundaries oh, yeah. and all the things. Um, it would not surprise me. Um, if they're even trying to provoke us into an incident or trying to get us to the point that we're at now. They said the other day that the United States is going to quit going up and meeting these planes every time they do because they're not doing anything. Well, that's what they want them to do is to quit going up and checking them out. 
But uh, anyway, so yeah, Russia is is on the brink, and uh, I guess you can tell us how much when we come back. But explain to you, to us how you get your website and the name of your new books, and then we'll go to break. Okay. Well, the website is my name, Benjamin Baruch. It's Benjamin, B-A-R-U-C-H, dot com. And it's also going to have a dot net and I think a dot org soon. But uh, BenjaminBaruch.com works just fine. And the book, The Day of the Lord is at Hand, be sure to get the seventh edition. And some of the resellers are offering a used version. If you click on Amazon and you look at the seventh edition, resellers will tell you, oh, you can get a used, practically new version. It's not the seventh edition. And the seventh edition has got substantially new information in it. So you don't want to read a copy that was published in 2002 or 1998. You want the 2014 version, which contains all the information about the Black Prince and the Star of Bethlehem, and I could go on and on. There's about 40 pages of new information, and it's the most powerful material in the book, for sure. So be sure to get the 7th edition. You'll find it on Amazon.com, and you can also get Search the Scriptures, the volume one, Out of the Darkness, volume two, You Shall Know the Truth, and they're all available for next to nothing in Kindle format if you want to read them on your computer, um, or the paper copies okay. are also available. Let me, let me break it. We've got to go. We'll come back and talk about it. We'll be back, folks, in three minutes. Thank you. Dan will be right back. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. An important message from Donald Trump and Americans for Limited Government. While I'm a Republican, right now some in the Republican Party are working overtime to hand more power to President Obama. These same people are turning their backs on the American workers and businesses. It's unbelievable. I learned a long time ago, a bad deal is far worse than no deal at all. And the Obama Trans-Pacific Partnership and Fast Track are a bad, bad deal. For American businesses, for workers, for taxpayers, 
It's a huge set of handouts for a few insiders that don't even care about our great, great America. Congress has to stand up and defeat this raw power grab. With the dismal Obama track record, why should a Republican Congress give him more power and gut the Constitution to do it? It's just crazy. Tell your congressman and senator, vote no on Fast Track. Take action at Obamatrade.com. Obamatrade.com. running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 316 316- 
most of them believe that every, that things are going to get much, much worse. Most of these folks are very accomplished campers and survivors, and a lot of them, they'll go, they go all winter long without going to the shelter by their own choice um, because they don't want to be told what to do. They are free Americans. And, you know, you think, well, why don't some of them get a job? Well, you know, a lot of folks do, uh, a lot of them do that work. They just can't afford to also pay rent someplace. Here's my point. So when, you know, when everything falls apart and you're living in a big city, you know what? Some of these very homeless people that you passed on the street that are born-again Christians, so to speak, are, might be the person that saves your life, that teaches you how to survive outside when there's nothing there. There's no water. There's no gas. There's no utilities. There's no food. That homeless person may become the leader will become leaders of different groups. The father will rise them up because they're being risen up right now. I should know I talk to them, and I watch them, and I know they survive, and they know what's coming. So you need better pray about that, is my thought, is that if you see homeless people where you're at, make sure that you extend some kindness to them because you never can tell. One of these days, you may need that person. He may be the person that leads you out of the city leads you safely through all the fighting and riots and everything that's on fire in the city and leads you through that mess to where you can get out. And the Father will use them because he placed them there for that reason. So you pray about that. Anyway, pray about helping us with the Father's Little Mission Church. We do need your help uh, because it's only people like you that listen to this radio program that has made this Mission Church survive for 15 years. And, folks, we are the, as we are the last hope for so many, you're the last hope for so many. We're all responsible to care one for another, as we are a brother's keeper. No matter all donations, no matter what size helps. And you know what? The Father notices all donations that come from your heart. And there's another thing. What good will riches and extra money in the bank do you when everything falls apart or a Russian missile hits down in the next city from you. What good is your riches going to do? You could have stored up treasure in heaven. And no, you don't have to give it to me. You can give it to the uh, people that are taking care of the poor in your neighborhood if you want. But pray about a donation for us. Anyway, you can donate online by mailing a check or money order, and you can find all this information at prophecyhour.com. That's prophecyhour.com. Or you can simply call me at 620-878-4682, 620-878-4682. And now we're uh, back talking with Benjamin Baruch. He's been talking uh, basically about the Antichrist and his coming, and, and he also has two new books out. Search the scriptures, you shall know the truth, and search the scriptures out of the darkness. I bet, well, I haven't had a chance to read the books. I've been glancing through it. And it, it looks to me like, and I'm going to ask him when he comes back on, um, that these are the kind of books that you need to read because it has passages in here that talk about how to survive in this coming time. Anyway, welcome now back. Benjamin, are you right there with me? Hey, brother, I'm right here. Okay, in brief, aren't these, are these aren't these books would they help them in the time that's coming, or is this telling them what's coming? No, uh, the day of the Lord is at hand is 
contains the instructional prophecies on what to do about what's coming, how to prepare, and what we're called to do based on the instructions that are in the Bible. Because when the Lord showed me the judgment, and I asked him, what should we do? He said, search the scriptures for the detailed instructions for this hour are in the Word of God, and the day of the Lord is at hand, outlines and summarizes those instructions. And then my new book, really it's not my book, it's the new book, The Lord's Having Me Type for Him, Search the Scriptures, is a seven-volume set. The purpose of a new book is to equip the believer who is called to be among the remnant. And the very first volume, Out of the Darkness, is dealing with the issues of our heart and dealing with the dark counsel of this world that has brought deception into our minds, a deception so subtle that we don't even know that it's inside of us, and then also to uncover the ministries of death, the many counterfeits that are out there. And then lastly, to reveal what God's doing in the lives of the people he calls his first fruit, which is his remnant, and, you know, what we need to do if we want to be in the remnant, because the remnant is getting ready. They're cleaning their garments, and they're searching their hearts, and they're making sure their lamps are full of oil. And so both books were meant to equip the remnant believer for this hour. You know, we all know this is coming. And honestly, I don't need more news about the fact that the book of Revelation is about to occur. I mean, I realize it's coming. It's going to be worse than we can imagine, but the Lord's going to protect a remnant. I need to know what to do to be part of that remnant, because, you know, if I'm not part of the remnant, I'm just going to be one of the martyrs, and the martyrs are going to be, many of them will be martyred quite quickly and don't really need to know the rest of the story, because they'll be watching it from heaven. And I know I've been called to minister to the ones the Lord is calling as his remnant. They have to be equipped to endure this hour because they're going to walk through it, and they're walking through all of it for the, the rapture of the church, if you want to use the word rapture, occurs at the last trumpet, as Paul tells us. And the last trumpet occurs after the tribulation, which is what Jesus said in Matthew 24, verses, I think it's 29 to 31. So we're walking through this thing before we meet the Lord in the clouds. Hallelujah. Yes, amen. amen. I, I agree. I, I agree. Holy, holy, holy. Um, so let's get back into what we were, we're talking about, I reckon. Um, the, had you, I don't know if you had quite finished up with what you were saying about um, now, the Antichrist. We were just getting, I was just setting the foundation, and let me let me try to go a little quicker to the conclusion so we can then talk about it. Okay. Let me just pick up with, I was studying the black horse, and and then I began to look at the black prince, and then a friend of mine called me and said that something was coming on the black sea, and so I went and studied the stars over the black sea, and Dan... The picture in the stars is basically warning the church that the Great War, World War III, is coming, worldwide persecution is coming, and the judgment of God is coming, and it's coming right quick. It's coming very fast upon us, and we must get ready. But then as I was studying the stars, I found a star I'd never seen before. And it turns out it's the star of Bethlehem returned in the heavens, and... Um, 
if we have time before the program ends, I'll go into some of the details. But as I was looking at this, I started to wonder, what is the relationship between the Black Sea, which is going to be the trigger for the world war, and the coming of the Black Horse that will usher in the rule of the Black Prince? And I started wondering, you know, how does the Black Sea relate to this? A friend of mine said to me, uh, we were talking, and I made the comment, you know, a lot of people are listening, but nobody hardly is doing anything. He said, yeah, everybody's just moseying around. And I said, mosey, that's an interesting word. It reminds me of the nursery rhyme, pockets full of posy, <laughs> ashes, ashes, we all fall down. And it's the nursery rhyme from the Black Plague. So I began to wonder, could there be a relationship between the Black Plague and the Black Sea and the Black Prince? Might they somehow all be related? So I started researching the Black Plague, which is called the Black Death. And it's really amazing. But the Black Plague came to England in the year 1348, in the, on the 33rd day of spring, which was the 23rd day of April. The servants of darkness did something that caused God to send the Black Plague. And that was exactly 666 years ago. I thought, well, that's an interesting number. 666. The servants of the Black Prince did something 666 years ago. What did they do? They formed the Council of the Elders of the Beast which they call the Order of the Garter, and it's 24 elders who are the servants of the Black Prince. Twelve of them are dedicated as servants of the Black Prince, and twelve of them are dedicated to the service of the monarch, the throne. The two of them make up two satanic covens of 13 witches and warlocks that are the king, witches, and warlocks over all the satanic churches of the earth. And the amazing thing, Dan, the 24 elders of the beast, and this is a mockery by Satan of the 24 elders of the book of Revelation who worship before the Lamb in the heavens. But these 24 elders of the beast, they call themselves Olympians because they brought the fire down from, that fell from heaven. They brought it to the earth, the revelation of Lucifer. And their symbol, rather than showing a pentagram as the symbol of their power, they chose to use five circles, Dan. Five really? interconnected rings, and the five rings represent the five-pointed star that is hidden within the magic circle of power. And so this satanic group of elders who called themselves Olympians, their symbol was five interconnected rings, which, of course, is the symbol of the Olympics we all know and love. And it turns out in 2012, the Olympics were held on the shores of the Black Sea. Pardon me, I think it was 2014, they were held on the shores of the Black Sea at the end of winter. And the whole world would cheer the Festival of Lights put on by the Illuminati. Only this time they would cheer from the shores of the Black Sea. So I began to research the Black Sea. Dan, there's a book, that it's on the Internet, written by a couple Russian scientists. Mm-hmm. In the book, they present scientific evidence of several things. Number one, the flood of Noah is real, and it really occurred. Number two, the epicenter of the judgment of God in the days of Noah was the Black Sea. And the Black Sea was cursed in the time of the judgment of Noah. 
And as a result, the sea water turned into poison. In antiquity, it was known as the Sea of Prosperity, and it was a freshwater inland sea. And all of the world's greatest cities were on the coast of the Sea of Prosperity. But when God judged the world in the time of Noah, he destroyed those cities, and the ruins of those cities today are 90 kilometers under the water of the Black Sea. And from that level down, the water is still poisoned. And they go through all the science of how God poisoned the fresh water and how it's gradually been cleansed over the 5,000 years or so by a chemical interaction of the rainfall and the sunlight. But the water at the bottom of the sea is still poisoned. And the amazing thing, and there's an entire book about the Black Sea and how it's related to the judgment of God. But here we are, and once again, the trigger point for World War III is going to come forth out of the Black Sea. And, you know, at the time, people were speculating maybe there's going to be an incident at the Olympics, the Winter Olympics in 2014. Well, right. no, that wasn't it. But right after the Olympics, Russia invaded Ukraine and occupied Crimea. Yeah. And so we've got the beginning of the war between the East and the West on the shores of the Black Sea. Yeah, Isn't that absolutely. amazing? And this this world war is what's going to usher in the reign of the Black Prince, which is the the name for the Antichrist. And you know, the Antichrist he comes from a royal family. He's a prince. The Scripture talks about him as the prince that shall come. And on his coat of arms, Dan, in Latin, the inscription reads, "I, the Black Prince, serve the Red Dragon." And doesn't really? that really tell you who he is? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, today they were talking about how um, Russia just today um, has started uh, their incursion back into Ukraine again. And so it's not over. And, you know, like I was, ta I was talking before about all the, the overflights and all those things, they, the excuse that they always use is that they were showing the world that, um, that they are strong and that per se, it's all about the Ukraine, that they don't want to be stopped from what they're doing with Ukraine. Ukraine could be the trigger point. Oh, it most certainly is. You know, it's interesting. On September 11th, 9-11, and that's kind of right. a big day in American history at this point, but I'm talking back in the 1920s, in the year 1923, Dan, the Black Sea exploded in flames, Really? And they called it the Lake of Fire. On 9 11 in 1923, there were massive earthquakes. Huge methane gas releases occurred, and the methane exploded. And the sea, the Black Sea, turned into nothing more than a huge sea of fire. And the newspaper headlines in that region the next day read The Black Sea has become the Lake of Fire. And is that wow. ever amazing? Wow, that's pretty amazing. Did you get that out of that book, or did you, that's yeah, pretty yeah, amazing? I, I yeah, can, I, I'll email you the book. I have it in PDF. And it, oh, yeah. these are not even believers. These are Russian scientists, and they go through, it's a couple hundred pages, they go through all the science and the evidence to basically say there's evidence that the biblical account of the flood of Noah is real. 
There really was a Noah. There really was a flood. Now, we know that. We who know the Lord, of course there was a Noah. But, you know, to the unbelieving world, this is like shocking news. That there's evidence that God's Word's true. Ha! Yeah, ha, exactly. Absolutely. It doesn't surprise us. Of course the, the flood of Noah occurred. But, Dan, the fascinating thing, and, you know, it would take an entire program to go through all the detail. There is a ton of evidence that the judgment of God in the days of Noah, the epicenter of that judgment was the shores of the Black Sea. And here we are again on the eve of the final judgment of the earth, and and Jesus said it will be just like the days of Noah. Well, one of the things that happened in the days of Noah, the trigger point was the Black Sea. And here we are again, the trigger point is the Black Sea and a country called Ukraine and a territory called Crimea. The crime scene is in Crimea. That's where World War III is going to begin. Um, you know, I don't believe in coincidences. You know, I, I believe that you know he he sets things in events, um, and they happen again. It's just like that. Um, you know, what I I really find fascinating. Uh, again, here we go. Um, I don't like to keep referring to my other program, but that was the deal in the other program that came through. Finding all of the bodies of the giants and the place where the giants were at confirmed the Bible. And But see, those things are coming forth and coming open, just like you're talking about this book that was written a while back. It's coming open now as a witness in this time that we're getting close. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Absolutely. We're knocking yeah. on the door. Yeah, and so I believe many more things will come to pass that we'll see open up and see things that we thought were missed. Well, we as believers didn't think were mystery, uh, uh, were you know mysteries, but to the world they were like the flood, like the giants, so on and so forth. I believe we'll see a lot of proof in the near future. What do you think? I think so. I think you know Jesus said everything that was covered would be unveiled and be revealed. And I think the truth is coming out. You know, it's coming out all over the place. And, you know, Satan's tried to hide the truth and cover it up with a bunch of lies, but the Lord is going to bring the revelation of truth. And, you know, for the nations, it will be a day late and a dollar short, because it says when he appears in the heavens, they're going to be weeping. And, you know, even though he's coming... They will know that they're not saved because they never repented, and then everything's going to be revealed. But, you know, it's incumbent upon us who are the believers to come to the point of true repentance. But, you know, the problem we have, Dan, the human heart is deceitfully wicked, and we don't know what's inside of us, and that is what Out of the Darkness is all about. And yeah. the people that have read it, a fair number of them, and I really, brother, once you start reading this book, you're not going to want to put it down. And it's really, it's written at a very, you know, it's written at a level where even your own kids in junior high could read the book, but it penetrates your heart. It's written in it, you know, if you read it and all you hear is the word in your mind, it'll be an interesting read, but maybe not so important to you. But if you read it and it touches your heart, it's going to change your life. And a large number of people that have read the book, they, they write emails or they call me and they say, Brother, I, I read the book. It's changed my life. I'm reading it again. 
And, you know, how many books do you read the book and feel like your life changed, and then you just start over? You go right back to the very first page, and you just start reading it a second time. <coughs> not you know very you many. Get the full, right? <laughs> I, I, I jokingly said not very many. Um, I read tons of books because I do radio, and I try to pride myself on reading the people's books so when I talk to them, I can talk with a legitimate conversation about their book. And I don't, there's not many that I reread, except the only book that I really reread, spend that much time in is the Bible. So if this book is that way, and I, I read it a second time, it did something for me. Oh, amen. Well, I feel the same way. I mean, I reread the Bible constantly. I've probably read the Bible, I don't even know how many times. I don't ever yeah, stop reading the scriptures. Yeah, and, absolutely. And the reason is. They're the words of truth. Well, this new series, the Lord told me, I want you to write a series of books. I want seven volumes entitled the book, Search the Scriptures, and I'm, I want you to use the, the teachings that I've given you. And so the message is, the content of the Search the Scriptures book is the messages that the Lord has given me to teach over the years. It's just... The average person does not have 300 hours to sit down and listen to, you know, 40 or 50 audio yeah. files that are archived on the Internet. Now, right. some people do, but most people don't have the time. So the most important messages are being reproduced in these books, and this is stuff that came forth by the Holy Spirit. I am really merely the typist. And Volume 1 has four parts. Matters of the Heart, Dark Counsel, Ministry of Death, and First Fruit. And if you don't have the, you know, you're not interested in reading, you're not a person that likes to read, but you like to listen to teachings, all you have to do is go on YouTube and search for Matters of the Heart, Dark Counsel, Ministry of Death, and First Fruit the teachings that I brought on those four subjects, and you will have Volume 1 out of the darkness in audio format. But if you okay. prefer to have it... I'm going to have to break in. We've got less than a minute before you got to go. So um, tell them where your website's at, and we'll, I'll have to get you out of here, and we'll do it again. I'm going to read these books over the weekend, and we'll talk about them. But, uh, Sounds great. The website's BenjaminBaruch.com. You'll find all this work on Amazon.com. If you just type in my name, Benjamin Baruch, it'll take you to all the work that's up on, on Amazon.com. If you want the books, if you just want the messages, go to YouTube and type in Benjamin Baruch and type in the messages. All right. Well, you be blessed, brother, and we'll talk again. Thanks. For all right. Thanks, Dan. God bless you. Bye-bye. Right. God bless. Bye-bye. Well, folks, um, pray about the things that have been said in this program. Make sure you check our archives. But, you know, I want when I ask you to donate, let's go with this. I want to tell you a little story. You know, there's an old story of a couple that's about to be married. You know, they lived in a small village, and they invited everyone from the village to their wedding. Kind of like radio. We invite everyone from the, the world to listen to our radio program. And each guest was asked to bring a jug of wine for the celebration. Each jug of wine would be poured into a giant vat to be shared by everyone. As the wedding day approached, each member of the village thought, well, if I do not bring my jug of wine, it won't be missed among so many other jugs of wine. Really? Well, the wedding day arrived, and the couple were married, and everyone was so greatly excited. 
And it, but as a tap, and if that was open so they could do their celebration, not a drop of wine flowed from it. For everyone was sure that somebody else would provide their share, or in this case, a donation. Folks, we need your help. Pray about it. Lift us up in prayer. Remember, there is only one God. That he is your father. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His son is Yeshua HaMashiach. He gave his life for repented sins. He rose after three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And through him, and only through him, is the way to the Father. Remember, always, always, always be a blessing to others, please. And make sure your family is saved. I mean, witness to them. Anyway, Lord our God, Father, King of the Universe, asking Yeshua HaMashiach's name, that the Father blesses and keeps you, and his face shines upon you, and is gracious to you, and gives you peace. Until next Thursday, this is Pastor Dan saying goodbye and shalom. You've just heard the Messiah's Branch broadcast featuring Pastor Dan. To contact Dan on the Internet, go to messiahsbranch.org. To write to Dan, send a note to Messiah's Branch, 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Tune in next time for Messiah's Branch. running out, jobs leaving the country. Many people cannot afford to eat or keep a roof over their head. Too many can do neither. Messiah's Branch has a mission church in Wichita, Kansas that helps the victims of this banker's economy, the American people, your neighbors. The mission is the last hope for so many Americans. We need your help to lift up the poorest of the poor. These are men, women, and children who once had homes now in the street. They all need what you need. First aid, beds, food, clothing, and so on. You can send a monetary gift or a box of necessities to 230 West 4th Street, Florence, Kansas, 66851. Or donate online by going to wichitahomeless.com or simply call 316 316- 319-4886. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. Greeks thought time or provided...